I want to thank the, uh, the witnesses for being here, being here today, and um, we look forward to a fulsome hearing. I want to thank all of those also who were in attendance. I know there was a little bit of an outbreak uh, prior to us convening. Uh, we thank you for being here. We do hope you'll respect uh, that now the meeting's in order. Uh, outbursts of any kind are unwarranted, and we'll respect the democratic process uh, that is taking place here. So again, we thank you for being here. We also thank you for your uh, courtesy as we move ahead. I, uh, I know the witnesses have agreed uh, to be here as long as we wish. So we'll start with seven-minute questions. Um, I do know, based on last night's presentation, uh, there's sometimes a tendency for uh, witnesses to want to uh, interject. And what I would say is, obviously, we conduct our meetings with a lot of respect and courtesy, and I would just ask the witnesses, if they would, to respond uh, directly to the question from senators on both sides of the aisle as if they ask, if, when you ask it directly to a, uh, to a witness, uh, get them to respond. If someone else wants to interject, they can indicate they want to do so, but senators should feel free to say, no, I just wanted that witness and, uh, and move on to the next to make sure that we don't end up in a somewhat filibustered uh, situation or able to fully get our questions answered. I want to start, uh, start today by thanking our committee. Um, we would not be here today, we would not have the information that we have today if we had not passed the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. Uh, this would not be taking place. I think the American people now understand uh, what this debate was all about. When Congress put in place sanctions to bring Iran successfully to the table, as we did, we granted the executive branch something called a national security waiver. And what that meant was the executive branch had the ability to waive our congressionally mandated sanctions to suspend them until such a time as we permanently waive them down the road. And as you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, over the objections of Senator Cardin and myself, unfortunately, uh, the executive branch uh, went directly to the United Nations uh, this Monday morning, um, something that certainly was not in the spirit of this, but this is what was always intended. And uh, I do want to say that uh, while Secretary Kerry has often said, well, Congress will have the ability to weigh in at some point in time prior to this law being passed and causing this hearing to happen today, we now read the agreement and realize that what he meant was eight years from now uh, we would have the opportunity to weigh in because that's what it's that's what's stated in the agreement. So I want to thank everybody, uh, all 19 members, for coming together unanimously, making that happen, and giving us a role. It's a heavy lift, as we know, but a role that w did not exist uh, prior to that passing. I have to say we had a briefing last night, and I left there. I talked to members on both sides of the aisle. Um, I was fairly depressed uh, after last night's presentation. With every detail of the deal that was laid out, um, our witnesses success, successfully batted them away with the hyperbole that it's either this deal or war. And therefore, we were never, never able to appropriately 
question or get into any of the details because every time we did, it was either this deal or war. So I believe that to be hyperbole. Um, I know the secretary last night pulled out a letter that was written in 2008 uh, by the prior administration. I don't know if he'll refer to that today, but as I thought about it laying last night in bed, I realized that what he was really pointing out with that letter is, unless we give Iran what they want, X. I mean, that's what really uh, that letter was used for last night. So let me just walk through that. We've been through an incredible journey. We began uh, 20 months or so ago with a country that was a rogue nation that had a boot on its neck. And our goal was to dismantle their program. We've ended up in a situation where the deal that's on the table basically codifies uh, the industrialization of their nuclear program. It's an amazing, amazing transition that has occurred. <laughs> And yet everyone here, not a person in this room, including our witnesses, everyone here knows there's not one practical need for the program that they're building. Not one. Not one. We've not had a single scientist, not a single witness can lay out any reasoning, not a single reason for Iran to be developing this program from the standpoint of what it means to them from a civil standpoint. Not one. Nine months after this agreement goes into effect, we realize that after Monday's uh, UN adoption, unless Congress intervenes, in 90 days this will be implemented. And then six months after that, in a total nine months from now, all of the sanctions that exist against Iran will be lifted. Incredible. Now there'll be a few remaining sanctions, but the big ones that matter will be lifted. So they'll have access to billions and billions of dollars. Um, their economy will be growing. They'll be shipping oil around the world. Um, it's an amazing thing. And so what happens, I think all of us figured this out as we went through the deal. Right now, we have some leverage. But nine months from now, the leverage shifts to them because we have a sanction snapback what they have, if we ever try to apply that, is what's called a nuclear snapback. <coughs> the way the deal is structured, they can immediately just begin. They can say, well, if you add sanctions, we're out of the deal. They can immediately snap back. So the leverage shifts to them. The PMD piece, the possible military dimensions, I think most of us call it the previous military dimensions because we know they were involved in that. Basically, that has no bearing, no bearing, per the agreement. Now, I know our witness will say, well, if they don't deal with this properly, we won't implement. But according to the agreement, it has no bearing whatsoever on whether the sanctions are removed or not. And yet, that was such an important piece uh, for everyone to know. Anytime, anywhere inspections. Last night, we had witnesses saying, I never said that. It's been a part of our mantra from day one. It's been a part of their mantra from day one, anywhere, anytime. Uh, inspections. Now we have a process that they're declaring is 24 days, but we all know that's not right. The 24 days begins after, by the way, the IAEA has found violations that they're concerned about, and then you give Iran time to respond to that, and then by the time it kicks in, there is a 24-day process, but it could be months. And as we know, 
in laboratories when you're developing a, a nuclear warhead that is about this big, it's very easy to cover things up like that. And all the, all the focus has been on finding uranium. There's other aspects of this that are very difficult to find. I know they've said this is the most comprehensive inspection regime that we've ever had. That's not true. That is not true. I've talked to secretaries of state and others. We had a far more comprehensive and rapid inspection program in Iraq. Far more. And that certainly didn't serve us particularly well. Ben and I have written a letter asking for a different, additional materials that we don't now have. Um, one of, the, one of the items we don't have is regarding the agreement between Iran and the IAEA. And my sense is we're never going to get that letter. So the inspection entity that we're relying upon to find out whether Iran is cheating, we, we're not even going to have access to that agreement. But let me just say this. We do know one of the characteristics is very interesting. We have a professional athlete in Chattanooga that spends about a month uh, there. He's incredibly the role model. He has got in incredible integrity. He's a role model to the world. And uh, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago about the program that professional athletes go through for drug testing. It's incredible. That is anytime, anywhere. There are qualities to this that, unfortunately, uh, I'm told I cannot get into. But there are qualities to this program that would not be unlike causing athletes to just mail in their own urine specimens in the mail and, and, uh, and us believing that that's where it, uh, that it came from them. So look, I, I've got some questions. Um, I want to talk a little bit about who we're dealing with here. Most of us have been to Iraq many times, and I'll never forget uh, visiting General Odierno in Baghdad. And every time we'd visit General Odierno in Baghdad, he'd have on his coffee table the, IF, the IFPs. that were used to, to maim and kill Americans. Um, they were laying out. They were made, the IEDs. They were laying there on the coffee table, every single one of them made by Iran. Once we developed the technology, by the way, to counter that, what they did next was develop something called an EFP, Explosively Formed Penetrator. Now, this is, what they do is they, they, they have a, an explosion. It heats up copper to go through a piece of machinery to maim and dismember Americans. This was all Iran, every single bit of it. We've all been out to Walter Reed, and we've visited these incredible heroes that have lost, in some cases, two arms and a leg. Some cases, two legs and two arms. We see them all over the country. They're living with this today. This is the country that we're dealing with, a country that created some of the most disturbing types and methods of maiming Americans that have ever been seen. They tried to kill an ambassador here in Washington, D.C. not long ago. I mean, that's, we know that. 
Ben and I went over to, with others, to the, uh, the other day to see something the Holocaust Museum had put together. A young man named Caesar had taken photographs of the Syrian prisons. Syrian prisons, which, by the way, Iran supports. Syria would not even, Bashar Assad would not even be in office today if it weren't for Iran. We went over and envisioned what the torture that's happening has been photographed and chronicled. Many of you have seen it on the internet. It's an amazing thing. It's happening right now, by the way, as we sit here. Some people might say, well, that was Iraq, and I don't know, should we have been there or not? This is happening this very second with the support of Iraq. Do you understand that? People's genitals right now are being amputated. People are being electrocuted. This is happening this very second in a prison in Iran, I mean in Syria, that Iran is supporting. Some would say we haven't done as much as we could to stop it because, because of these negotiations. When I was in college, I wasn't a particularly good student. First part of college, I was interested in sports. The latter part, I was interested in working. I learned one thing. I learned about the critical path method, and I ended up building buildings all over our country. And I learned that you start with something like this, and you lay out a vision, and you build it out. And you begin with the end in mind, and you put first things first. It's sort of the critical path. And what I've seen our secretary do is, uh, I know he's developed a tremendous warmth with Iran's foreign minister, Zarif, and he talks about it often. But what I think you've actually done in these negotiations is codify a perfectly aligned pathway for Iran to get a nuclear weapon just by abiding by this agreement. I, I, I look at the things that they need to do, the way it's laid out, and I don't think you could more perfectly lay it out. From my perspective, Mr. Secretary, um, I'm sorry. Not unlike a hotel guest that leaves only with a hotel bathrobe on his back, I believe you've been fleeced. In the process of being fleeced, what you've really done here is you have turned Iran from being a pariah to now Congress, Congress being a pariah. A few weeks ago, you were saying that no deal is better than a bad deal. And I know that there's no way that you could have possibly been thinking about war a few weeks ago. No way. And yet what you say to us now, and said it over and over yesterday, and I've seen you say it over and over in television, that if somehow Congress were to turn this down, if Congress were to turn this down, the only option is war. Whereas a few weeks ago, for you, for you to turn it down, the only option is war. I don't think you can have it both ways. Let me just say this. If Congress were to say these sanctions cannot be lifted, it wouldn't be any different than the snapback that we now have, where, in essence, the United States on its own, the United States on its own, 
can implement snapback, but my guess is the other countries, as you've stated before, wouldn't come along. So we've got to decide which way that it is. I know you speak with a degree of disdain about our regional partners when you describe their reaction to this deal. But one of the things we have to remember is if we had actually dealt with dismantling their nuclear program, they wouldn't be responding in the way that they have. But not only has this not occurred, in addition, we are lifting the ballistic missile embargo in eight years. I have no idea how that even entered into the equation, but it did at the end. We are lifting conventional <coughs> weapons embargo in five years. And in a very cute way, uh, with hortatory language in the agreement, unbelievably, we are immediately listing, lifting the ballistic missile testing programs. We're, we're, we're lifting that ban. So I'd have to say that based on my reading and I believe that you have crossed a new threshold in U.S. foreign policy, where now it is the policy of the United States to enable a state sponsor of terror to, to obtain sophisticated industrial nuclear development program that has, as we know, only one real practical need. That is what you're here today to ask us to support. I look forward to your testimony and the appropriate questions afterwards. Senator Cardin. Well, first, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for convening this hearing. I, I want to thank Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, and Secretary Liu, and your entire negotiating team, Wendy Sherman, and many others, who have devoted the last two years uh, to negotiating with Iran. Uh, incredible service to our country, uh, incredible sacrifice uh, to their families. <coughs> and we thank you very much for your dedicated service, your hard work, and what you have, uh, your service to America. Uh, the Iranian Nuclear Agreement Review Act that Senator Corker referred to, passed earlier this year, was an effort uh, by uh, the, the members of Congress uh, to set up the appropriate review for a potential deal with Iran. We are extremely pleased that after very difficult negotiations, we were able to get a unanimous vote of this committee you get the support of the White House. And we believe we accomplished two major objectives in passing that statute. First, of course, we set up the appropriate review for Congress. Uh, it allows us to take action, or we don't have to take action. It recognizes the fact that the sanction regime was passed by Congress and that we have a role to play in regards to implementing any agreement, as we now see in the JCPOA, that Congress has a role to play. So it set up an orderly process, and this hearing is part of that process. It took you two years to negotiate this agreement. It took you two months in Vienna to get to the final details. We're on day four of our review of 60 days. I have not reached a conclusion, and I would hope that most members, I would hope the members of the Congress would want to get all the information, allow those who are directly involved to make their case. We have hearings set up next week and the following week, and we'll get outside experts 
Many of us have taken advantage of that opportunity in the past, and I would hope that we will all use that opportunity before drawing a conclusion. This is a very important agreement from the point of view of U.S. foreign policy. Iran in the region is critically important to the United States security. <coughs> but there is a second objective to the Iran Nuclear Review Act, and that is to concentrate all our effort on the bad guy, Iran, and speak with unity as much as we could in the United States so that our negotiators could concentrate on Vienna and not on Washington in dealing with getting the very best possible agreement. And I must tell you, Mr. Chairman, I looked at the framework that was agreed to in April and looking at the final agreements that we've gotten today, and our negotiators got an awful lot, particularly on the nuclear front, which is beyond my expertise. We got things that there were many rumors during these last couple months of what was going to be in this agreement and how it was going to be weakened from the April framework that, in fact, have been strengthened since the April framework. So I just want to applaud our negotiators for taking the strength of our unity and turning it into results in Vienna. And we'll be talking a little bit about that as we go forward. The objective is clearly to prevent Iran from ever becoming a nuclear weapon power. That is our simple objective. We know who we are dealing with. This is a state sponsor of terrorism. This is a country that abuses human rights, that violates the, the ballistic missile area. We know all that. But we singularly are trying to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power because we know that is a game changer in the region. That's the objective of this agreement. And the standard that we have to use, because there is no trust in Iran, for us or in Iran. The Supreme Leader on Friday after the agreements were entered into said, we will trample upon America. We don't trust Iran, but we gotta leave emotion out of this. We gotta look at the agreements, and we gotta determine whether the compliance with this agreement by the United States will put us on a path that makes it less likely or more likely that Iran will become a nuclear weapon power. That's got to be the test that we use. So, Mr. Chairman, I have many questions that I hope we will get answers today. I hope those answers will provoke a debate among us in Congress and American people and help us make the right decisions. Since there is no trust, the inspection and enforcement regime is particularly important. We need to understand how it works. Do we have sufficient time to discover if Iran is violating the terms of this agreement in order to take effective action to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power? That's a question that we need to understand. We need to know the breakout times. We need to know what happens after the time periods. Do we have sufficient opportunity to prevent Iran from ever becoming a nuclear weapon state, the commitment that they make under this agreement? Are the inspections robust enough to deter Iran from cheating? And if they do, will we discover and be able to take action? Mr. Chairman, you raised the 24-hour window. I think all of us recognized there was going to be a protocol for inspection. That doesn't get us by surprise. 
But we need to know whether the 24-hour delay, knowing what Iran is likely to do, does that compromise our ability to have effective inspections? And I hope our witnesses will deal with that today, because that is a matter of major concern. We need to know the answer to that. Have we cut off all pathways for Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon, particularly the covert military use opera, uh, operations? We know that's a major concern. That's why the PMD is particularly important. The chairman mentioned the PMD and the work that the IAEA, the IAEA are our inspectors, our international inspectors. They have great credibility in this area, but we will want to know whether they have the capacity to do what we're asking them to do. Will they have the access that, that we need? Because we do need to know about their prior military dimension in order to be able to go forward to make sure that we can contain any opportunity they may use for covert activities. Will we discover it and be able to take action? These are questions that we we're going to ask. We've read the agreement, and we still have questions and we hope we'll get answers as to whether we have effectively prevented Iran from using the covert activities to develop a nuclear weapon. Will this agreement provide us, IAEA, with sufficient access to the people, places, and documents so that we know their prior military dimension? Are the snapback provisions for reimposing sanctions adequate if Iran violates this agreement? Uh, that's a, an issue that I, I hope we will have a chance to talk about. At the end of the time limits in the agreement, Iran will have the capacity to expand, as the chairman rightly pointed out, to an industrial capacity. They can get through there in, in nuclear enrichment, and in, 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 in uranium enrichment. That they can do. Do we have su sufficient capacity, knowing their commitments for nonproliferation, Knowing their, the requirements of the additional protocols, is that going to be adequate to prevent Iran? Do we have a sufficient enough breakout time that if Iran tries to become a nuclear weapon state after the time period, that we have sufficient tools to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapon power? These are questions that we need to have the answers to before we can make our judgments. Now, there, there are other areas. I want to be reassured that the United States still has the flexibility to impose non-nuclear sanctions on Iran for its support of terrorism human rights abuses, and against a ballistic missile program. No one expects Iran's bad behavior to change on implementation date. We know who we're dealing with. Will we be able to use the powers we've used in the past and build upon them to take action against Iran, particularly in light that they'll have additional resources? Can we do that? And can Congress work with the administration to strengthen those tools? without violating the JCPOA. JC. I want to know how the administration is updating its regional deterrence strategy against nefarious and destabilizing Iranian activities, and how we're going to work with our partners to build up their capacity to counter Iran, especially Israel. The chairman mentioned the lifting of the international arms embargo. That's of great concern as to how, what impact it will have on our regional partners. How will it impact an arms race in that region of the world? These are questions that we need to get the best information we can in making our decisions. And lastly, let me mention this, because I think it's critically important. What are our options if the United States walks away from this? How will we be perceived internationally? Will we be able to maintain effective enforcement of sanctions with our international partners? 
And will Iran come back to a negotiating table with a country that has walked away from an agreement? These are questions that we need to understand. It, we, we need to know that the options are right now, do we go forward or we not? And what are the options? What are the, what are the consequences if we don't go forward? So, Mr. Chairman, we have a full plate, uh, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses, and I hope that the members of this committee will use the information that we get today to debate the issue, take the time that we have, and do what's right for the American people, and ultimately make the decision that we think is best to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power. Thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. I appreciate so much uh, the way we've worked together on so many issues and, uh, and the entire committee. With that, uh, I know that our witnesses here today need no introduction. Uh, they're well known not only here, around the world, in spite of our policy differences. I think each of us uh, deeply appreciate the uh, that may exist. There may not be policy differences in some cases, but um, we we deeply appreciate uh, the tremendous effort that you put up, put out on behalf of our country. We thank you for being here today. We thank you for being willing to be here today, as long as it takes for everybody to get their answers. And uh, with that, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, collectively uh, Secretary John Kerry, who used to serve with us and sit on this side of the dais. Secretary Ernie Moniz, um, who's been incredibly helpful to all of us in understanding the technical aspects of the deal and someone that I think we all appreciate deeply. Secretary Liu, who served in multiple positions here, has been uh, certainly uh, affirmed by this committee in several, uh, several times. We thank you all for your great service uh, to our nation uh, in spite of some of the concerns that we have here today. I think you all, un all understand the drill. Um, take uh, five minutes or so to explain. I've, as, as I've looked at your testimony, I know it's very brief. Uh, just to warn people in advance, I'm going to defer my questions, uh, Ben, and move to you immediately thereafter and, and use my time to interject as, as things move along. So with that, uh, Secretary Kerry. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, <clears throat> members of the committee and friends and uh, former colleagues. Um, we really do appreciate the chance to uh, discuss with you the comprehensive plan that we and our P5 plus one partners have developed with Iran regarding the future of its nuclear program. And let me emphasize to everybody here, uh, this isn't just the United States of America. Uh, these are other nuclear powers, France, Britain, Russia, China. They have a pretty good understanding of this field and of the challenges. And I appreciate the way in which uh, they and Germany, which was the plus one, all came together, all contributed, all were part of this debate. So you're not just looking at what this table negotiated. You're looking at what the international community, the P5 plus one, under the auspices of the United Nations negotiated. And, and they're not dumb. They're experts, every one of them in nuclear technology, in ratification, in verification, are smart people who spent a lifetime at this. And they've signed off on this agreement. Now, I'm joined by two cabinet secretaries whose help was absolutely invaluable in reaching this deal, and I thank all of you for the role that Congress played. I was privileged to be the chairman of this committee when we passed the Iran sanctions effort. And we all remember the debate. We passed it unanimously. And it played a very significant role 
in bringing Iran to the table and in helping to make it clear that we needed to bring about a serious and productive negotiation with Iran. Now, from the day that those talks began, we were crystal clear that we would not accept anything less than a good deal. And we defined it up front as a deal that closed off the four pathways to a bomb, the two uranium pathways, the one plutonium pathway, and the covert pathway. So we set our standard, uh, and we believe we have achieved that standard. After almost two years of very intensive talks, the facts are also really crystal clear, that the plan that was announced last week in Vienna is, in fact, a deal that does shut off those pathways and provides us with guarantees through the lifetime of the NPT and the participation of Iran that we will know what they are doing. Now, the chairman mentioned in his opening comments some phrase about unless we give Iran what they want. <laughs> Folks, they already have what they want. They got it 10 years ago or more. They already have conquered the fuel cycle. When we began our negotiations, Iran had enough fissile material for 10 to 12 bombs. They had 19,000 centrifuges, up from the 163 that they had back in 2003 when the prior administration was engaged with them on this very topic. So this is not a question of giving them what they want. I mean, it's a question of how do you hold their program back? How do you dismantle their weapons program? Not their whole program. Let's understand what was really on the table here. We set out to dismantle their ability to be able to build a nuclear weapon. And we've achieved that. Nobody has ever talked about actually dismantling their entire program because when that was being talked about, that's when they went from 163 centrifuges to 19,000. Everybody here at this dais knows what the options are for actually stopping that. It's called military action. Because they're not going to stop it otherwise. They've already proven that. They proved it during all those years. So under this terms of this agreement, Iran has agreed now to remove 98% of its stockpile. Voluntarily, they're going to destroy 98% of their stockpile of enriched uranium, they're going to dismantle two-thirds of their installed centrifuges, and they're going to take out the existing core of an existing heavy water reactor and fill it with concrete. Iran has agreed to refrain from producing or acquiring highly enriched uranium and weapons-grade plutonium for at least 15 years. And if they began to do that, Ernie Moniz will tell you, we will know it immediately. Iran has also agreed to accept the additional protocol, and the additional protocol is an outgrowth of the failure of the North Korea experience, which put in additional access requirements precisely so that we do know what Iran is doing. And they have to ratify it before the UN sanctions uh, are, are lifted at the end of this process. They have to have ratified, they have to have passed it in their majlis. They've agreed to live by it, from day one, they're going to live by the additional protocol. In addition, there are additional transparency measures we can go into in the course of this hearing. 
Now, if Iran fails to comply, we will know it, and we will know it quickly, and we will be able to respond accordingly by reinstituting sanctions all the way up to the most draconian options that we have today. None of them are off the table at any point in time. So many of the measures that are in this agreement are there for not just for 10 years, not just for 15 years, not just for 20 years, not just for 25 years, of which there are measures for each of those periods of time, but they are for life forever, as long as Iran is within the NPT. By the way, North Korea pulled out of the NPT. Iran has not pulled out of the NPT. Remember that two years ago when our negotiations began, we faced an Iran that was enriching uranium up to 20% at a facility that was secret and buried underground. And they were rapidly stockpiling enriched uranium and had installed nearly 20,000 nuclear centrifuges. They were building a heavy water reactor that could produce weapons-grade plutonium at the rate of enough to produce one or two bombs a year. And experts assessed that the breakout time then, as a result, the interval required to rush to be able to produce enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon was about two to three months. If this deal is rejected, we return immediately to this reality, except that the diplomatic support that we have built with all these other countries that we have accumulated would disappear overnight. Now, let me underscore, the alternative to the deal that we have reached is not what I've seen some ads on TV suggesting disingenuously. It isn't a, quote, better deal, some sort of unicorn arrangement involving Iran's complete capitulation. That is a fantasy, plain and simple. And our own intelligence community will tell you that. Every single department of our intelligence community will reinforce that to you. The choice we face is between an agreement that will ensure Iran's nuclear program is limited, rigorously scrutinized, and wholly peaceful, or no deal at all. That's the choice. The fact is that there are 189 nations that live by the NPT. Five of them are, as we know, uh, the main nuclear powers of the UN, uh, and 184 of them are non-nuclear. Uh, in power, but they live by it. And we have lived by what the IEA does with respect to ensuring the surety of what all of those 184 nations are doing, including 12 that enrich. Now, if the U.S. Congress moves to unilaterally reject what was agreed to in Vienna, the result will be the United States of America walking away from every one of the restrictions that we have achieved and a great big green light for Iran to double the pace of its uranium enrichment, proceed full speed ahead with a heavy water reactor, install new and more efficient centrifuges, and do it all without the unprecedented inspection and transparency measures that we have secured. Everything that we have prevented will then start taking place, and all the voluntary rollbacks of their program will be undone. Moreover, if the U.S., after laboriously negotiating this multilateral agreement with five other partners, were to walk away from those partners, we're on our own. Our partners will not walk away with us. 
Instead, they will walk away from the tough multilateral sanctions regime that they've helped to put in place. And we will have squandered the best chance we have to solve this problem through peaceful means. Now, make no mistake, President Obama has made it crystal clear that we will never accept a nuclear-armed Iran. He is the only president who has developed a weapon capable of guaranteeing that. And he has not only developed it, he has deployed it. But the fact is that Iran now has. We all don't like it. But whether we like it or not, Iran has developed experience with a nuclear fuel cycle. They have developed the ability to produce the fissile material for bomb. And we can't bomb that knowledge away. Nor can we sanction the knowledge away. Remember, sanctions did not stop Iran's nuclear program from growing steadily to the point that it had accumulated enough fusible material to produce those 10 nuclear weapons. By the way, they didn't choose to produce them. Unlike North Korea that created a nuclear weapon and exploded one and pulled out of the NPT, Iran has done none of that. The truth is that the Vienna Plan will provide a stronger, more comprehensive, more lasting means of limiting Iran's nuclear program than any alternative that has been spoken of. And to those who are thinking about opposing the deal because of what might happen in year 15 or 16 or 20, remember, if we walk away, year 15 or 16 or 20 starts tomorrow. And without any of the long-term verification or transparency safeguards that we have put in place. Now, over the past week, I've spoken at length about what exactly this deal is. I also want to make clear what this deal was never intended to be. First of all, as the chief negotiator, I can tell you I never uttered the words anywhere, anytime, nor was it ever part of the discussion that we had with the Iranians. This plan was designed to address the nuclear issue. The nuclear issue alone because we knew that if we got caught up with all the other issues, we'd never get where we needed to to stop the nuclear program. It would be rope-a-dope, staying there forever, negotiating one aspect or another. And the highest priority of President Obama was to make sure that Iran couldn't get a nuclear weapon. So we were disciplined in that. We didn't set out, even though we don't like it, and I have extensive plans that I will lay out to you if you want them, about how we're going to push back against Iran's other activities, against terrorism, its support, its contributions to sectarian violence in the Middle East and other things. All of those are unacceptable. They're as unacceptable to us as they are to you. But I got news for you. Pushing back against an Iran with a nuclear weapon is very different from pushing back against an Iran without one. And we're guaranteeing they won't have one. So. We're working very closely with the Gulf states. Just today in Saudi Arabia, Ash Carter was there yesterday. The uh, foreign minister said that Iran's nuclear deal appears to have all the provisions necessary to curtail Iran's ability to obtain a nuclear weapon. That's Saudi Arabia. The Emiratis are supportive. The foreign minister of Iran's gonna be in the Emirates this weekend. So I would suggest respectfully that we are going to continue to press Iran for information about the missing American, about the immediate release of Americans who've been unjustly held, 
And there isn't a challenge in the entire region that we won't push back against if Iran is involved in it. But I will tell you, it wouldn't, none of those challenges will be enhanced if Iran gets a nuclear weapon. So the outcome cannot be guaranteed by sanctions alone. I wish it could, but it can't be. And by the way, it also can't be guaranteed by military action alone. Our own military tells us that. A viable option here is a comprehensive diplomatic resolution of the type that is reached in Vienna. And that deal, we believe, and we believe we will show it to you today and in the days ahead, will make our country and our allies safer. It will ensure that Iran's nuclear program remains under intense scrutiny forever, and we will know what they are doing. And it will ensure that the world community is united in ensuring that Iran's nuclear activities will remain wholly peaceful, even as we also stay united in pushing back against its other activities in the region which we object to. We believe this is a good deal for the world, a good deal for America, a good deal for our allies and friends in the region, and we think it does deserve your support. Thank you. Secretary Moniz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, um, and members of the committee. Uh, I do appreciate the opportunity to come here to discuss the JCPOA uh, reached between the uh, E3, EU, uh, plus three, uh, and Iran. Uh, the agreement uh, prevents Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, provides strong verification measures that give us uh, time to respond uh, if Iran chose to violate uh, the terms, and fundamentally takes none of our options off the table. I want to stress that America's leading nuclear experts at the Department of Energy and our national laboratories were involved throughout these negotiations. Argonne, Livermore, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, Pacific Northwest, Sandia, Savannah River, the Y-12 National Security Complex and the Kansas City plant all played important roles. These nuclear experts were essential to evaluating and developing uh, technical proposals in support of the U.S. delegation. As a result of their work, uh, I am confident that the technical of this deal are solid and the Department of Energy stands ready to assist in the implementation. The deal uh, meets the President's objectives, uh, verification of Iranian nuclear program that is exclusively peaceful and sufficient lead time to respond if it proves otherwise. The JCPOA will extend for at least 10 years uh, the time it would take for Iran to produce just the fissile material for a first nuclear explosive uh, to at least one year from the current breakout time of two, perhaps three months. The deal addresses the uranium enrichment, plutonium, and covert pathways uh, to a nuclear weapon. The first point I'd like to make is that the Lausanne parameters, uh, as the ranking member mentioned, uh, are maintained and in fact strengthened, uh, not weakened, but strengthened uh, in, the, in the final agreement. This means restricting the number, type, and location of centrifuges, dialing back the R&D program, dramatically reducing Iran's enriched uranium stockpile uh, from 12,000 to 300 kilograms of low enriched uranium hexafluoride and prohibiting introduction of any fissile material uh, to Fordo. Excess infrastructure is also removed from both Natanz and Fordo. All these reasons taken together establish uh, the one-year breakout timeline uh, for accumulating uh, highly enriched uh, uranium. Uh, and something that we have not stressed, but I do want to add, uh, at the end of these 10 years, 
Iran will have far fewer than 19,000 centrifuges uh, because uh, they acknowledge uh, the uh, breakage rate, if you like, of IR1s, uh, and they will not have uh, a large replacement capacity because of the agreement. Uh, in addition, Iran will have no source of weapons-grade plutonium. Uh, the Iraq reactor is transformed under international oversight and participation uh, to produce far less plutonium than their current design, no weapons-grade plutonium uh, in normal operation, uh, and uh, essentially immediate recognition uh, if they try to deviate uh, from that, uh, from that uh, practice. Furthermore, uh, all of the uh, irradiated fuel, plutonium-bearing fuel, from that reactor goes out of the country for life, the life of the reactor. Uh, this deal goes beyond the parameters in Lausanne in a number of ways. One area uh, is that Iran will not engage in several activities that could contribute to the development of a nuclear explosive device, uh, including multiple point explosive systems uh, these, uh, and neutron, uh, special neutron sources. These commitments are indefinite. And in addition, for 15 years, Iran will not pursue plutonium or uranium or uranium alloy uh, metal, metallurgy. Because Iran will not engage in activities needed to use weapons-grade material for an explosive device, an additional period should be added to our stated breakout timeline. To be clear, the deal is not built on trust. It's pretty hard-nosed, uh, hard-nosed requirements that will uh, limit Iran's activities uh, and ensure inspections, transparency, and verification. I can assure you this is not what Iran wanted. Uh, it is a substantial uh, dialing back of their, of their program. To preclude cheating, international inspectors will be given unprecedented access uh, to all of Iran's declared nuclear facilities. Uh, uh, I guess we couldn't make an exception if there were military occupation, but that is not the case uh, here, uh, and any other sites of concern, uh, as well as the entire nuclear supply chain from the uranium supply to centrifuge manufacturing and operation. And this access to the uranium supply chain comes with a 25-year commitment. And beyond 25 years, even after a quarter century of compliance with a peaceful program, assuming we get there, we still have, as we've said many times, the additional protocol uh, in place to monitor uh, Iran's nuclear activities. But another thing that we have also uh, in perpetuity is their adherence to modified code 3.1, uh, which means that they must notify the IAEA uh, even before they start building any, any nuclear facility. This eliminates uh, uh, kind of a, a loophole where one could do something covertly and then say, um, you know, oops, uh, we were planning to notify before, uh, before we brought in nuclear material. They must do this now in the planning stage so it's another thing that we have uh, beyond uh, 25 years. The IAEA will be permitted to use advanced technologies, and again, this was nailed down after Lausanne, uh, including things like real-time enrichment monitoring, uh, which I must, might say is a technology developed by our uh, DUE laboratories. In this case, uh, by the way, Oak Ridge uh, uh, played a major role, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, if the international community suspects Iran is trying to cheat, the IAEA can request access to any suspicious location. Much has been made about a 24-day process for ensuring IAEA inspectors can get access. Uh, uh, I would say that, unlike Secretary Kerry, I did say the words uh, anytime, anywhere, uh, and I am very pleased that yesterday a member of, of your caucus acknowledged, however, that the full sentence was anytime, anywhere, in the sense of a well-defined process with a well-defined end time. So I'm pleased that we have established uh, that.
uh, in fact, the IAEA uh, can, can request access to any suspicious location with 24 hours notice under the additional protocol, uh, which Iran, again, will, will implement. The deal does not change that baseline. The issue is if there is then agreement is not reached, uh, then when the IAEA requests access, this 24-day uh, clock uh, will, uh, will start. Uh, the, and this is a new tool, a finite time, uh, a new tool for resolving uh, disputes uh, within what we think is a short period of time. Uh, and short is defined because of our confidence uh, in environmental sampling that we will then be able to uh, have to implement to detect microscopic traces of nuclear materials even after attempts are made to remove uh, the evidence of, of, of activities with nuclear material. Uh, and in fact, Iran's history provides a good example. Uh, in February 2003, the IAEA requested access to a suspicious facility in Tehran. Uh, uh, it was denied. Uh, negotiations dragged out for six months. Uh, but even after that long delay, environmental samples taken by the IAEA revealed nuclear activity, uh, even though Iran had made a substantial effort to remove and cover up the, uh, the, the evidence. Uh, and we have, in addition, uh, conducted our own experiments uh, to verify uh, the ability to detect very, very small traces of, uh, of uranium. Uh, the agreement will be implemented in phases. As has been said already, uh, some 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years, and then as I've already described, uh, the key transparency measures uh, that stay beyond 25 years, uh, uh, of course, uh, as, long, as long as Iran is in the NPT, uh, and if they were not in the NPT, uh, every alarm bell would go off uh, all over the place and appropriate actions uh, would, of course, uh, be taken. In closing, I just want to acknowledge the uh, tireless work of, of the negotiating team and led by my colleague, uh, Secretary Kerry, uh, the U.S. agency, multi, the U.S. multi-agency delegation worked together seamlessly, uh, and the E3, EU plus three displayed remarkable co cohesion uh, throughout this very complex uh, endeavor. The continued collaboration and cooperation among the leading nations, in particular the P5 of the UN Security Council, is really crucial to ensuring that Iran complies uh, with the JCPOA so as to avoid the reimposition of a major international sanctions regime and probably other responses as well. And I just want to say again, the deal is based on science and analysis because of its deep grounding and exhaustive technical analysis carried out largely by our DOE scientists and engineers. Again, I'm confident that this is a good deal for America, for our allies, and for our global security. Uh, and just to respond to Ranking Member Cardin's criterion, Iran will be farther from a nuclear weapon capability uh, all the time uh, with, rather than without, this agreement. So again, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Uh, Secretary Liu. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, to speak today about the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. A foreign policy uh, decision of this significance deserves thorough review. I'm confident that a full and fair debate on the merits will make it clear that this deal will strengthen our national security and that of our allies. The powerful array of U.S. and international sanctions on Iran constitutes the most effective sanctions regime in history. These measures have clearly demonstrated to Iran's leaders the costs of flouting international law, cutting them off from the world's markets, and crippling their economy. Today, the Iranian economy is about 20% smaller than it would have been had it remained on a pre-2012 growth path. 
The United States government stood at the forefront of this effort across two administrations and with the bipartisan support in Congress and of this committee. Together, we established a web of far-reaching U.S. and international sanctions that ultimately persuaded Iran's leadership after years of intransigence to come to the table prepared to roll back its nuclear program. International consensus and cooperation to achieve this pressure is vital. The world's major powers have been and remain united in preventing a nuclear-armed Iran. That unity of purpose produced four tough UN Security Council resolutions and national-level sanctions in many countries and secured adherence to U.S. sanctions by countries around the world. The point of these sanctions was to change Iran's nuclear behavior while holding out the prospect of relief if the world's concerns were addressed. Accordingly, once the IAEA verifies that Iran has completed key steps to roll back its nuclear program and extend its breakout time to at least one year, phase sanctions relief would come into effect. There is no signing bonus. To be clear, there will be no immediate changes to UN, EU, or US sanctions. Only if Iran fulfills the necessary nuclear conditions will the US begin suspending nuclear-related secondary sanctions on a phased-in basis, sanctions that target third country parties doing business with Iran. Of course, we must guard against the possibility that Iran does not uphold its side of the deal. That's why if Iran violates its commitments once we have suspended the sanctions, we will be able to promptly snap back both U.S. and U.N. sanctions. And since preventing the U.N. snapback requires an affirmative vote from the U.N. Security Council, the United States has the ability to effectively force the reimposition of those sanctions. Even as we phase in nuclear-related sanctions relief, we'll maintain significant sanctions that fall outside the scope of the nuclear deal, including our primary U.S. trade embargo. With very limited exceptions, Iran will continue to be denied access to the world's largest market, and we will maintain powerful sanctions targeting Iran's support for terrorist groups such as Hezbollah, its destabilizing role in Yemen, its backing of the Assad regime, its missile program, and its human rights abuses at home. Just this week, Treasury sanctioned several Hezbollah leaders, building on designations last month targeting the group's front companies and facilitators, and we will not be relieving sanctions on Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, its Quds Force, any of their subsidiaries, or their senior officials. Some argue that sanctions relief is premature until Iran ceases these activities and that funds Iran recovers could be diverted for malign purposes. I understand the concern. But Iran's ties to terrorist groups are exactly why we must keep it from ever obtaining a nuclear weapon. The combination of those two threats would raise a nightmare scenario. A nuclear-armed Iran would be far, a far more menacing threat. If we cannot solve both concerns at once, we need to address them in turn. JCPOA will address the nuclear danger, freeing us and our allies to check Iran's regional activities more aggressively. By contrast, walking away from this deal would leave the world's leading sponsor of terrorism with a short and decreasing nuclear breakout time. We must also be measured and realistic in understanding what sanctions relief will really mean to Iran. Iran's $100 billion in restricted foreign reserves, which many fear will be directed for nefarious purposes, constitute the country's long-term savings, not its annual budgetary allowance. We estimate that after sanctions relief, Iran will only be able to freely access around half of these reserves, or about $50 billion. 
That's because over $20 billion is committed to projects with China where it cannot be spent, and tens of billions in additional funds are non-performing loans to Iran's energy and banking sector. As a matter of financial reality, Iran can't simply spend the usable resources, as they will likely be needed, to meet international payment obligations such as financing for imports and external debt. Moreover, President Rouhani was elected on a platform of economic revitalization and faces a political imperative to meet those unfulfilled promises. He faces over half a trillion dollars in pressing investment requirements and government obligations. Iran is in a massive economic hole from which it will take years to climb out. Meanwhile, we will aggressively target any attempts by Iran to finance Hezbollah or use funds gained from sanctions relief to support militant proxies, including by enhancing our cooperation with Israel and our partners in the Gulf. Backing away from this deal to escalate the economic pressure and try to obtain a broader capitulation from Iran would be a mistake. Even if one believed that extending sanctions pressure was a better course than resolving the threat of Iran's nuclear program, that choice is not available. Our partners agreed to impose costly sanctions on Iran for one reason, to put a stop to its illicit nuclear program. If we change our terms now and insist that these countries now escalate those sanctions and apply them to all of Iran's objectionable activities, they'd balk. And we would be left with neither a nuclear deal nor effective sanctions. So it's unrealistic to think that additional sanctions pressure would force Iran to totally capitulate. And impractical, impractical to believe we could marshal a global coalition of partners to impose such pressure after turning down a deal our partners believe is a good one. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is a strong deal, with phased relief only after Iran fulfills its commitments to roll back its nuclear program and a powerful snapback built in later if they break the deal. Its terms achieve the objective they were meant to achieve, blocking Iran's path to a nuclear bomb. That is an overriding national security priority, and it should not be put at risk, not when the prospects of an unconstrained Iranian nuclear program present such a threat to America and the world. Thank you, and we look forward to answering your questions. Thank you all very much, Senator Cardin. Once again, thank you for your, your testimony. Uh, it's been stated many times that the United States maintains its ability to impose uh, sanctions relative to support of terrorism, human rights violations, and ballistic missile issues. Uh, and I've read the JCPOA, and there are several paragraphs in the JCPOA to give me concern. Let me just read one, and that's uh, uh, paragraph 29, where the parties will refrain from any policy specifically intended to directly or adversely affect normalization of trade and economic relations with Iran. So, Secretary Liu, I, I just want to get your assurance that we have full ability to use uh, the tools of sanctions against Iran uh, for its uh, support of terrorism, human rights, and ballistic, uh, non-nuclear type of activities, which include congressional action that Congress might want to take. Senator Cardin, um, it was a matter of extensive discussion in the negotiations. We made clear in the negotiations that we retained the ability and we were going to keep in place sanctions on terrorism, on regional destabilization, on human rights violations. In fact, we are not lifting sanctions that are based on those authorities and we're not de-designating entities that were designated for those reasons. 
We also have made clear we reserve the right to put additional sanctions in place uh, to address concerns about terrorism, human rights. And when and you say we, it includes the Congress of the United States. So, you know, Congress has authorities in this area. I know that there is currently legislation pending uh, regarding Hezbollah, and we you know, would work with you on legislation. The thing that we can't do is we can't just put right back in place everything that was part of the nuclear sanctions and just put a new label on it. We have reserved our rights to put sanctions in place that address those continuing malign activities. The Iran Sanctions Act expires at the end of 2016. We will still be in the JCPOA period of time where snapback of sanctions is a viable uh, hedge against Iran's cheating. Congress may well want to extend that law so that that power is available immediately if Iran were to violate the agreement. Is that permitted under the JCPOA? I think that if it's uh, on expiration, it's one thing. If it's well in advance, it's another. I think the idea of coming out of the box uh, right now is very different from what you do uh, when it expires. Let me ask us. Secretary, yeah, uh, the question is why would that be? It's either allowed or not allowed, but we'll, we'll get to that. I want to get to Secretary Meniz, if I might. The 24 days that you referred to, and I appreciate your explanation, but there are three types of activities that could take place in violation of the JCPOA by Iran. They could be directly using nuclear material that, that is in violation, and you've already addressed that issue as far as the 24 days, but it could involve weaponization, or it could involve uh, research not using nuclear material. Would the 24-hour, 24-day delay in those cases compromise our ability to determine whether Iran is in compliance with the agreement? Senator Cardin, uh, again, let's put the, the nuclear material I think we, we've, we've addressed and is uh, quite secure. Uh, clearly, when, when it goes into um, weaponization activities, even there, there's a spectrum. Uh, for example, uh, working with uh, uranium metal uh, is something that would still involve nuclear material, and uh, and I think we would have very, very strong tools uh, there. Uh, when we go to some other activities, uh, without getting into uh, too many specifics, uh, there will still be a variety of signatures. Uh, for example, uh, my second priority on the weaponization list uh, would be uh, explosively driven neutron sources, uh, and I think that there are quite a, there are certainly telltale signs that I think. Uh, uh, we would have access to, or the IAEA inspectors more precisely would have, uh, would have access to. Uh, clearly, as one gets into other areas, such as uh, computer modeling, uh, that's a very uh, different kind of, uh, of detection uh, uh, challenge. And in all of these, er all of these cases, uh, to go to undeclared sites, we are going to rely upon uh, our intelligence uh, capabilities, those of, of our partners, uh, to be able to point the IAEA to suspicious activities. But there are non-nuclear signatures, but it does, uh, it does get more complicated. Thank you. Secretary Kerry, I, I want to just elaborate a little bit more on our capacity after the time limits and Iran's obligations after the time limits on its nuclear enrichment towards a weapon, weaponization of a nuclear weapon. I understand they still have obligations under the, their non-proliferation uh, uh, treaty. They still have obligations with the additional protocols under the NPT. But could you tell us how much lead time we will have, what the breakout looks like after the 15 years, and 
And what uh, assurances do we have that we will be able to detect and take action before Iran becomes a nuclear weapon state after the 15 years? Well, first of all, Senator, after uh, throughout the entire life of the agreement, the additional protocol provides for the right of access. That is where the 24-hour notice for access comes from, and they have to respond to it. So if we had any intelligence regarding a suspicious activity or suspicious site, shared, I might add, among many, among all the P5 plus one, Israel, countries in the region, we will have an incredible amount of sourcing for this. We would then be able to put the ask to them, uh, and they have to respond to that. Uh, and if they don't respond to that, then we have the ability to convene, to vote, to put back in place sanctions, or to take other actions if we deem that appropriate. But After the 15 years? Yes, but yes. But let me just fill out for you. We also have a 20-year component, which allows us televised tracking of their centrifuge production of their rotors and bellows on the centrifuges. And we have a 25-year, quite remarkable uh, insight, which is a, a access and monitoring tracking of their life of the uranium cycle. So from the mining, uh, the mills, the yellow cake production, the gasification, the centrifuge, out into the waste, we will have an ability, the IAEA will have the ability to appropriately monitor that every step of the way. So if we have X amount of raw uranium ore coming out or, or in the mill, if there's X amount of milling taking place and then some is diverted somewhere, or we don't see it going into the place it next has to go to, we're going to have extraordinary insight to this. In addition to that, under the additional protocol and under the IAEA process for civil nuclear programs, we, all of the facilities are declared because it is a civil nuclear program. As such, there's literally 24-7 visitation in those sites. They're, they're not even request sort of situations. It's only for the undeclared facility about which you have a suspicion that you have to go through the other process. But we're going to have amazing insight because they are living by the NPT, or allegedly they're going to live by the NPT, and that's what we have to make sure they are doing. And, and so we have day-to-day -day insight to that. I might add to all our colleagues that under the interim agreement, which, by the way, a number of people called an historic mistake and a tragedy, and you heard all of the same rhetoric you're hearing now, those same people asked for us to keep that in place two years later because it's worked. And the fact is Iran has lived up to every component of that over the course of the last years. They, they reduced the 20% uranium, they undid Iraq, uh, and so on and so forth. I won't go through it all now. So we will have this uh, level of insight, which I think is not being examined enough and understood enough. It's not a, nothing ends at 15 years. Simply the size of the stockpile limitation ends and, and the enrichment, they can enrich further, but we will have insight to that enrichment. A civil nuclear program requires enrichment at approximately 5% or so. I mean, that's the high, high end of it. If you start to enrich higher, up around the 20%, you're talking about the Tehran research reactor or a few other things. But 
There's no rationale whatsoever for enrichment above that. And we would have insight to that enrichment program that would instantly know if they're beginning to uh, go somewhere else. Red flags go off everywhere, and we'd be all over it and able to respond. We'd actually have months to respond, to be honest with you. Um, and, and so the fact is the breakout team never goes down to a level below which we have an ability to be able to respond, and I think Ernie can speak to the full breadth of this scrutiny. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Mr. Yeah. Chairman, may I just ask one, one sure. footnote? Sure. Um, uh, because it's uh, a kind of a, what could be a collateral benefit, uh, actually, of this agreement is that going to the um, uranium supply chain uh, safeguards, I just want to add that this is something that the IAEA really wants to have much more broadly. And so this would actually be a first in, in moving towards cradle-to-grave safeguards. I might add there's some other first that unfortunately we cannot talk about uh, relative to some of their procedures, which uh, I alluded to. Um, and I would say to Mr. Secretary, uh, yes, people have said that uh, they'd rather keep JAPOA in place than move to something worse. That doesn't mean that people particularly liked JAPOA in the first place, but on comparison. So. I, I just want to clarify that, uh, Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, you, you know, it's uh, Senator Cardin, who I have the highest respect for, uh, made a statement which I really agree with, and that is that we really need to leave emotion out of this. And uh, I couldn't agree with you more. This should be done in a very non-emotional way. But that doesn't mean we've got to leave common sense out of this, with all due respect. You know, we've gone from the mantra of uh, no deal's better than, uh, uh, than a bad deal. And I've heard everybody say that a couple of few weeks ago. And now we've gotten to the point where, well, you have to accept this or else it's war. The mantra has changed dramatically. And uh, I, all I can say is after reviewing this, even, even in a cursory fashion, anyone who believes this is a good deal really joins the ranks uh, of the most naive people on the face of the earth. When you're dealing with the people that we're dealing with here, with the history they have of cheating and everything else, uh, anyone who can say this is a good deal. I, I know the justification is, well, it's not perfect. Well, th the word perfect shouldn't even be used in a sentence with this agreement. It isn't even close to that. The, the, one of the most disappointing things, and I joined the chairman in this in that closed hearing yesterday, is we've, that we've been told we have no choice in this. We have no choice in this because we have gone from the position where we started, where we had Iran isolated and they were viewed on the world stage as a pariah. If we don't go along with this, we're told, our, the, the other negotiators are going to go along with this and the United States will be isolated on this issue and we will be the pariah on the national stage. Now just think about that. Where we have, where where this, where these negotiations have taken us, from the from a situation where we had Iran exactly where we wanted them, to now, if we don't go along with this, then we are going to be the isolated and uh, uh, pariah character on the national stage. Well, look, the other thing that was so important in this was verification. We have to have verification. Everybody said this is this is the number one thing on verification. Well. Everyone here knows that there's a site called Parchin, and Parchin was a subject of these negotiations, and Parchin was designed, and I heard the Secretary say that we're going to ensure that their nuclear ambitions are only for peaceful purposes. How in the world does Parchin fit that? Parchin was designed and operated as an explosive 
testing place where they designed a, deten a, de a, detonation, a detonation trigger for a nuclear weapon. Parchin stays in place. Now, does that sound like it's for peaceful purposes? Let me tell you the worst thing about Parchin. What you guys agreed to was you, we can't even take samples there. IAEA can't take samples there. They're going to be able to test by themselves. Even the NFL wouldn't go along with this. How in the world can you have a nation like Iran doing their own testing? Now, I know uh, Secretary Moniz, who, who, by the way, I, I think is one of the brightest guys that I know, has told us, oh, don't worry, we're going to be able to watch it on TV, and there's a good chain of, uh, of custody for the samples that are going to be taken. Are we going to trust Iran to do this? This is a, a good deal. This is what we were told we were going to get when we were told that the, don't worry, we're going to be watching over their shoulder and we're going to put in place uh, verifications that, that are absolutely bulletproof. We're going to trust Iran to do their own testing? This is, this is absolutely ludicrous. Well, the one thing that bothers me uh, incredibly about this is the billions of dollars that Iran's going to get. We've been briefed on the fact that while they have been in this horrible financial condition, and we have gotten them to a horrible financial condition, one of their national priorities has been to support terrorism. They've supported Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis, with financial aid, with military aid, with every kind of aid there is. Every, everything we're trying to do in the world has their fingerprints on it trying to do us in. So these billions of dollars are going to be put back in their hands within, I'm told, about nine months. And again, we were told yesterday, it doesn't matter what we do. Congress, go ahead and do your little thing. It doesn't matter. Because we don't have control over this money. Actually, it is the, uh, the other people who are sitting at the table that have uh, control over the money. And no matter what we do, they're going to release, release the billions of dollars. Well, I, I got to tell you, th this is a very heavy lift uh, when you sleep at night and you say, well, I'm going to vote to release $50 billion. Started at $100 billion. Now you got it down to $50 billion, whatever it is, knowing, knowing that that money is, uh, a portion of that money is going to be directly transferred to people who are going to be trying to kill Americans and who are trying to kill innocent people and, 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 uh, and that uh, are trying to kill our allies. Uh, to say this is, uh, to, to be able to walk away from this and say that this is a good deal is ludicrous. With all due respect, you guys have been bamboozled and the American people are going to pay for that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Boxer. Can we respond at all to any of that? My time's up, Mr. Chairman. I suspect <laughs> we're going to hear lots of response to that. Well, isn't there time built in for answers? Or I'm, I'm more than glad for you to take a moment to answer. Well, let me, let I want me to make start. sure this gets a full and fair hearing. So, Yeah, let me start with the beginning here. Uh, the comment was made that, uh, what is it, naive if you think this is a good deal. This is an article from the Washington Post. I urge you all to read it. How the Iran deal is good for Israel, according to Israelis who know what they're talking about. <laughs> I urge you to read it. Uh, 
It says here, a host of prominent members of the country's security establishment have come out at various stages of negotiations in support of the Obama administration's efforts. In an interview this week with the Daily Beast, Ami Ayalan, former head of Shin Bet, or Israel's top domestic security agency, suggested Israel's politicians were playing with fears in a fearful society. He praised the Vienna Agreement as a useful measure to curb the Iranian threat. I don't think he's naive. He praised uh, he, uh, Ephraim Halevi, former chief of the Mossad, Israel's spice agency, hailed Obama's victory. Look, folks, uh, you know, you throw it around. Uh, Senator, you said we had them exactly where we wanted them. 19,000 centrifuges? Enough fissile material for 10 to 12 bombs? Is that where we wanted them? What was the purpose of this sanctions? To dismantle our operation. Just finish. I was chairman when we passed those sanctions, and our purpose was to bring them to negotiations. So we've negotiated. And I guarantee you, for the first 15 years, you have unbelievable restraints that make it impossible to even think about making a bomb. Well, they think about it, can't do anything about it. So at the end of 15 years, you have every option that you have today. Your decision is whether you want those 15 years to be right now or take the 15 years and figure out whether or not this is going to work. That's really the choice. Now, I don't know what you mean by we had them right where we wanted them. To what end? Yeah. Um, before I turn to Senator Boxer, since we gave you time, I, I do want to say that I think Iran has done a masterful job in giving you a talking point with the 19,000 centrifuges, 10 of which are operating, but we all know they're antiques. They're antiques. And so we all talk about the number of centrifuges, but this deal lays out their ability to continue research and development on the IR-2Bs, the IR-4s, the IR-6s, the IR-8s, and in year eight, they can industrialize that. For a peaceful and, and program. For a peaceful program that's well, under well, the IAEA. Let, let, me, let me finish. I'll let you talk. They've said the IR-8 is their future. You know the IR-1 is an antique. It doesn't even operate most of the time, or at least it operates 60%. It's slow. They want to get rid of those. So they did a masterful job in getting the West and other countries to focus over here on something that is of no use to them while they're able to draft an agreement that allows them a pathway to continue sophisticated development on something that they can put in a covert facility and, and, and enrich in, in, in levels and pace that they never imagined. So with that, Secretary Boxer. Mr. Chairman, if I may add, I think uh, I must say that uh, every element of the R&D program is rolled back in time. Uh, the fact is they right now have very, they are very active in all these areas and it is significantly delayed. So that, that's a fact. And it is a fact. In year eight, they're given in, the time. In, in year, I'm sorry, in year sir. eight. That's why the president said in year thirteen there's zero breakout. But let me let the, me move to Senator Mock. Never a zero. But sir, it, it is it is an incorrect characterization. I apologize for saying that in year eight they are in industrial activity. It's a small cascade that they can start to to do years after uh, their current plans. And many people thought it was going to take that long for them to even have the capacity to do that. So as I mentioned, from a critical path standpoint, they have been brilliant. 
You ready for me? Okay. Um, colleagues, put me down as someone who thinks Iran is a bad and dangerous actor, and I don't think there's one person uh, involved that doesn't believe that. And so that's why um, I believe we need to curb their nuclear ambitions. I think it's essential. And I don't think the American people want another war. And at the end of the day, I know some disagree with this, uh, I think that's, at the end of the day, that's really the option, which everyone tiptoes around. Now, you know, I support the right of my colleagues to say anything they want. But you've sat there and you've heard two of my colleagues go after you uh, with words that I'm going to repeat. You were fleeced. One said, the other said, you've been bamboozled. So putting aside the fact that I think that's disrespectful and insulting, it, that's their right to do. There are other ways to express your disagreement. But that goes to the, your core as a human being and your intelligence. And I think you're highly intelligent. So let me ask you, and if you could just answer yes or no, I know it's hard for you, Secretary Kerry, to do so, <laughs> because we're senators and it's not our way. But I, then I can get through the rest of my list. So my colleagues think that you were fleeced, that you were bamboozled. That means everybody was fleeced and bamboozled, everybody, almost everybody in the world. So I want to ask you, does the United Kingdom, our strong ally, support this accord? Yes. Uh, does Australia, one of our strongest allies, support this accord? Yes. Does Germany support this accord? Yes. Does France support this accord? Yes. Does New Zealand support this accord? I haven't seen their statement. <laughs> well, they're on the Security Council, they're not, and they voted for it. Oh, you mean in the vote? Yes. Well, I mean All 15 either, either by vote, a, a support, or a vote. Uh, did, did Jordan? voice its support yes. in their vote. Yes. Did Spain, did Nigeria, did Lithuania, yes. yes. You get the drift. If you were bamboozled, the world has been bamboozled. That's ridiculous. And it's unfair, and it's wrong. You can disagree, for sure, with aspects of this agreement. But I think we need to stay away from that kind of rhetoric. Now, I have the agreement right here, and I've read it. And one thing that I was surprised as I sat down to read it, I thought, you know, will I be able to understand this document? It's very understandable. So I want to say, uh, uh, cite a couple of things in here. Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. That's one phrase. Another one is, and that's number, that's, um, this one is number 16. Iran will not engage in activities, including at the R&D level, that could contribute to the development of a nuclear explosive device, a nuclear explosive device, including uranium or plutonium, and that's in this accord. So one of the things I want to do is send out a message to Iran, not to the people of Iran, who I think 
are really good people, but to those folks there that are so dangerous. And that is, you said it real clearly, and if you don't live up to it, I guarantee you the consequences will not be pretty. And I think that's an important message that has to go out because they signed it and they said it and the whole world is watching them. Um, Secretary Kerry, I authored the U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Act and the U.S.-Israel Enhanced Security Cooperation Act. So proud of that. And, and President Obama signed both of those. And it means that we stand shoulder to shoulder with our closest ally. And we know Israel does not like this agreement. I'm very glad you, you uh, read those comments of the Shin Bet person because the truth is there is division. It's quiet. But there are some who think this was the way to go. Um, so, so I would hope, as someone who has stood so I was going to say tall, but it's hard for me to say that, stood so tall for this relationship with Israel. At the end of the day, I think this relationship is going to be even more strengthened. And I want to get your view on that, because I know that Ash Carter went to Israel. Do you have anything to report about that meeting and how that went? Well, Secretary Carter went with the intention of um, laying out and beginning a dialogue uh, in great detail, which he did with the defense minister of Israel. And they had, I think, almost a day-long meeting in which they discussed the many ways in which we are prepared to work with Israel, uh, understanding the, obviously understanding the very dangerous dynamics of the region right now. So, and, and, and Secretary Carter, in fact, went up towards the Golan Heights to review with them what the threat is currently from ISIL, Daesh, and so forth. These are all things that we are prepared to push back on in any number of ways. And we also believe there's the potential of a kind of new alignment in the region. I will be going to speak with all of the GCC members in a few days to talk about the ways in which the Gulf can come together with Israel and others in a more, in, in, in really a new alignment, a new alliance. Well, I want to anyway. impress you on that because... We were reading about Saudi Arabia's words today in the press, and I, I just am list, I don't, I haven't had time to check it out, and I wanted to ask you, um, do you believe the Saudis are supportive now, despite the fact they view New Zealand as a regional adversary? I believe they will be supportive of this, and I was very heartened to see. I met with Adel al-Jaber, the foreign minister, just a few days ago. He indicated to me that they were prepared to support it if certain things are going to happen. Those things, I believe, are going to happen. So I anticipate that. Um, and, and Senator, I, I'm sorry to divert, but I just wanted to mention, I forgot to quote, because I don't want to be accused of being the person, you know, saying the choice is military or otherwise. Uh, Ephraim Halevi, the chief of the Mossad, also said, quote, uh, anyone who followed events in Iran in recent decades or has studied the matter has to admit truthfully that he never believed Iran would ever agree to discuss these issues, let alone agree to the measures imposed on them by the world powers. The alternative would be military strikes, which would plunge the region into deeper insecurity and would likely not be successful, Halavi said. So we're not alone in describing what the choice is here. Uh, and, and I think, uh, Senator, there's a 
real potential to have a change in the Middle East, there's also a potential to have a confrontation. Right. This does not end the possibility of a confrontation with Iran, obviously, depending on the choices that they make. Okay, I just want to say, would you just thank Wendy Sherman for me, personally, for her work? Donald Trump said something, why don't you bring women into this negotiation? It would go much better. Yeah. Well, she was Wendy the chief Sherman, negotiator. Uh, she's fantastic. I wish she was here. I don't. She's absolutely spectacular. She did an extraordinary job. We wouldn't be where we are without Wendy, without Jack, without Moniz, and an incredible team. A team, by the way, all across the government of the United States. Experts whose life is spent analyzing Iran, analyzing nuclear proliferation, who came from the Energy Department, from the, from the intelligence community, from uh, the State Department elsewhere, all who work together. And, and believe me, they're a savvy group of people, uh, and nobody pulled any wool over their eyes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Senator, Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, Secretary Kerry, the administration has publicly stated that you expect this deal is going to be rejected by majorities in, in both houses of Congress. You said that while winning approval of Congress would be nice, your goal is basically to convince enough Democrats to support the deal so that you can avoid an override of the president's veto. So as far as the administration's concerned, this is a, a done deal. But, but I do think it's important for the world, and especially for Iran, to understand that as far as the American sanctions are concerned, this is a deal whose survival is Israel beyond the term of the current president. And by the way, I personally hope that the next president is someone who will, who will remove the national security waiver and reimpose the congressional sanctions that were passed by Congress, uh, because this deal is fundamentally and irreparably flawed. I believe it weakens our national security, and it makes the world a more dangerous place. And throughout this process, by the way, this administration, in my opinion, has repeatedly capitulated on some important items. The examples are endless. It begins by allowing a perception to be created that we were pressing for anywhere, anytime inspections, and now denying that that was ever part of the process or ever promised. And I understand all the disputes about the terms, but clearly there was a perception created among my colleagues in both sides of the aisle that we were pressing for anywhere, anytime inspections, including of potential covert sites. Then the snapback sanctions, I think, are also hollow. We have this complicated 24-day arbitration process that Iran is going to test and exploit over and over again. They realize this, by the way. That they know that once the international sanctions are gone, they'll be impossible to snap back. As your Iranian counterpart, Mr. Zarif, has bragged, quote, once the structure of the sanctions collapse, it will be impossible to reconstruct it. He also bragged earlier this week, by the way, that incremental violations of the agreement would not be prosecuted. No matter what happens, Iran will keep the more than billions of dollars it is going to receive up front, basically as a signing bonus. Iran will be allowed to continue to develop long-range ballistic missiles, ICBMs, that know only one purpose, and that is for nuclear warfare. And, uh, and so all these uh, pr promises they're making about never pursuing a weapon, they are all revealed as lies when they are developing a long-range rocket capable of reaching this very room one day, not so far off in the future. There's only one reason to develop those rockets. That's to put a nuclear warhead on them. By the way, the deal also allows the arms embargo to eventually end. On terrorism, this deal provides billions, possibly hundreds of billions, to a regime that, according to the Director of National Intelligence, directly threatens the interests of the United States and our allies. And lastly, nothing in the deal holds Iran to account on human rights. Quite the opposite. The Iranian regime is being rewarded for its atrocious 
human rights record. I know that you said that you've brought up the American hostages in every negotiation, and I, I think we all thank you for that. But for the families of Americans who are missing or detained in Iran, such as that of my constituent Robert Levinson, this deal has brought no new information regarding their loved one's whereabouts. This deal does nothing for Washington Post reporter Jason, uh, Jason Rezian, whose brother Ali is with us here in this room today. In fact, you personally met and negotiated with an Iranian official who, when pressed on Jason's case, lied to the world. He lied to the world by saying, we don't jail people for their opinions. This deal does nothing for Marine Corps Sergeant Amir Hekmati, who dictated a letter from Evan Prison that said, quote, Secretary Kerry sits politely with the Iranians, shaking hands and offering large economic concessions to save them from economic meltdown, unquote, as Iran adds hostages. Does nothing for Pastor Saeed Abedini, whose only crime was practicing his religion. In fact, the only people this deal does anything for directly are the Iranian officials who want to continue to jail and execute their people, who hate Israel and seek to wipe the Jewish state and its people from the face of the planet, who want to spread mayhem throughout the Middle East and continue to help Assad slaughter the Syrian people and perhaps kill some Americans and Israelis while they're at it. Secretary Kerry, I do not fault you for trying to engage in diplomacy and striking a deal with Iran. I don't. I do fault the president for striking a terrible deal with Iran. I hope enough of my Democratic colleagues can be persuaded to vote against this deal and prevent the president from executing, executing it. But even if this deal narrowly avoids congressional defeat because we can't get to that veto-proof majority, the Iranian regime and the world should know that this deal, this deal is your deal with Iran. I mean yours meaning this administration. And the next president is under no legal or moral obligation to live up to it. The Iranian regime and the world should know that the majority of members of this Congress do not support this deal and that the deal could go away on the day President Obama leaves office. And in that realm, I wanted to ask about this. If you today are a company that after this deal is signed, go into Iran and build a manufacturing facility, and then the next president of the United States lifts the national security waiver, or Iran violates the deal, do the obviously, do the sanctions apply against that facility moving forward? In essence, if I go in, if a company goes into Iran now after this deal, builds a manufacturing facility of any kind, they build car batteries, and then Iran violates the deal and the sanctions kick back in, will that facility be able to continue to operate without facing sanctions? Senator, um, if a company acts uh, to go in to do business with Iran while the sanctions are lifting, that would be permitted. If Iran violates the deal, and if the sanctions snap back, they would not be able to continue doing things that are in violation of the sanctions. Okay, so the reason why it's important, it's important for companies anywhere in the world to know that whatever investment they make in Iran, they are risking it. In essence, they are betting on the hope that Iran never violates the deal, and they are also hoping that the next president of the United States does not reimpose U.S. congressional sanctions by which they would become a sanctioned entity. I have one more specific question about the deal. <coughs> There's a section titled Nuclear Security, and the document states that those who negotiated the deal are prepared to cooperate with Iran on the implementation of nuclear security guidelines and best practices. There's a provision, 10.2, it reads, cooperation through training and workshops to strengthen Iran's ability to protect against and respond to nuclear security threats, including sabotage, as well as to enable effective and sustainable nuclear security and physical protection systems. Here's my question. If Israel decides it doesn't like this deal and it wants to sabotage an Iranian nuclear program or facility, 
does this deal, does this deal that we have just signed obligate us to help Iran defend itself against Israeli sabotage, or for that matter, the sabotage of any other country in the world? The, uh, I, I believe that, that, that refers to things like physical security and safeguards. I think the, uh, all of our options and those of our allies and friends uh, would remain in place. Well, <coughs> I guess that's my point. <coughs> if, a, if Israel conducts an airstrike against a physical facility, does this deal, the way I read it, does it require us to help Iran protect and respond to that threat? No. Uh, no. It does not. The, the, the purpose of that is to be able to have longer-term guarantees as we enter a world in which cyber warfare is increasingly uh, a concern for everybody, that if you are going to have uh, a nuclear capacities, you clearly want to be able to make sure that those are adequately protected. But I can assure you, we will coordinate in every possible way with Israel, with respect to Israel's concerns. So if Israel conducts a cyber attack against the Iranian nuclear program, well, that, are we obligated I, I, to help I, them defend themselves against the Israeli no, cyber I attack? Assure you, I, no, I assure you that we will be coordinating very, very closely with Israel as we do on every aspect of Israel's security. And well, That's I, not how I read this. Well, I don't, see I, don't any see way, I don't see any way possible that we will be in conflict with Israel with respect to what we might want to do there. And I think we just have to wait until we get to that point. But I do think, Senator, you know, I listened to a long list of uh, your, your objections here uh, about it. But um, there's no alternative that you or anybody else has proposed as to what you... I sure have, Secretary Kerry. I have. And I am confident that the next president of the United States will have enough common sense that if this is being applied properly, if it's being implemented fully, they're not just going to arbitrarily end it. They might want to engage and find a way if they think there's some way to strengthen or do something. But I cannot see somebody just arbitrarily deciding, let's go back to where we were, where they're completely free to do whatever they want without any inspections, without any input, without any restraints, without any insight. I don't think any president would do that. Well, even and the status quo was they're already in violation. Before you signed this deal, Iran was already in violation of existing mandates and restrictions, including uh, things they had signed on to in the and past. And this deal brings them back into compliance, Senator. That is exactly the purpose of this deal. Well, this deal brings and them back into promise They have to live up to it, and if they don't live up to it, every option we have today is on the table. Yeah. So we don't lose anything here. But we, the way we lose is by rejecting the deal. Because then you have no restraints. You have no sanctions. You have no insight. You have no inspectors. You have no diminution of their centrifuges. You have no reduction of their, of their uh, stockpile. And if you want to just conveniently forget the fact that they had enough fissile material to build 10 to 12 bombs, that's the threat to Israel. I mean, if you go back to that without any alternative, other than what uh, you know, most people think is going to be the alternative, which is confrontation. Nobody has a plan that is articulated, that is reasonable as to how you are going to strengthen this, do something more, when the supreme leader of Iran and the president of Iran and others believe they've signed an agreement with the world. And the rest of the world thinks it's a good agreement. Now, if you think the Ayatollah is going to come back and negotiate again with an American, that's fantasy. Uh, you're never going to see that because we will have proven we're not trustworthy. 
We got 535 secretaries of state, and you can't deal with anybody. And that's going to undo a whole bunch of efforts and a whole bunch of things that matter to people in the world. That's what's at stake here. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Secretary, just to ensure that uh, uh, I have uh, appropriately addressed the situation, I want to refrain and say uh, we have been fleeced and not make that uh, anything that's directed at an individual. I do want to say one of the ways we brought them into compliance is that we have agreed to let them do what they're doing and actually agreed to let them do it on an industrialized basis. So I will have to say that's how we brought them into compliance. But if I could, uh, Senator but Senator, Kim, this is a very important point because we're not alone in this, folks. The Bush administration proposed the exact same thing. This is not something that President Obama just sort of dreamed up and thought was a good idea. In June 12th of 2008, President Bush, and, and, and through Condoleezza Rice, who signed the memorandum with the P5 plus one, said that in return for Iran doing things with their nuclear program, here's what we were ready to do. Recognize Iran's right to nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. That's all we're doing. Treat Iran's nuclear program in the same manner as that of any non-nuclear weapon state party to the NPT once international confidence in the exclusively peaceful nature is restored. Provide technical and financial assistance for peaceful nuclear energy, including the state-of-the-art power reactors, support for R&D, and legally binding fuel supply guarantees. Improve relations with Iran and support Iran in playing an important and constructive role in international affairs. Think about that. Work with Iran and others in the region on confidence-building measures and regional security. Reaffirmation of the obligation to refrain from the threat or use of force. Cooperation on Afghanistan, steps towards normalization of trade and economic relations, energy partnership, civilian projects, civil aviation cooperation, assistance in Iran's economic and social development. All of that was offered by President George W. Bush, June 12, 2008, but it didn't happen. Because well, me, Iran let, uh, was you're, not you're sort of filibustering here. The one element that you left out that they did not agree to is was stopping allow, enriching, allowing them to enrich. So if I could, so you but, did, but Senator since, Menendez. Let, 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 you know, okay. That's fine. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, let me start off by saying that I appreciate the enormous work and the arduous quest that you have been in pursuit of. And I, I think that no one would uh, want to be applauding you more uh, than I, who has been following Iran since my days in the House International Relations Committee uh, nearly 20 years ago, and as one of the authors of the sanctions regime uh, that are recognized to bring Iran to the negotiating table. However, I am concerned that the deal enshrines for Iran and, in fact, commits the international community over time to assisting Iran in developing an industrial-scale nuclear power program complete with industrial-scale enrichment. And while I understand the program's going to be subject to Iran's NPT obligations, I think it fails to appreciate Iran's history of deception in its nuclear program and its violations of the NPT. And it will, in the long run, I think, make it harder to demonstrate that Iran's program is not, in fact, being used for peaceful purpose, 
because Iran will have legitimate reasons to have advanced centrifuges in an enrichment program. We will then have to demonstrate, if in fact that is the case, that its intention is dual use and not justified by its industrial nuclear power program. That's a much more difficult burden. Now, Mr. Secretary, uh, you've always been skeptical about sanctions. I know you, you sort of like embrace them here today, but when you were chairman of this committee, in a hearing on sanctions legislation that I was authoring, when the administration was vigorously, vigorously arguing against it, uh, your comment was to Wendy Sherman and David Cohen, so what you are really saying is that this is a very blunt instrument which risks adverse reaction as opposed to a calculated uh, effort. So in that hearing, I remember I had to come back because I didn't expect that even the question of the amendment was going to come up. And they were there uh, trying to excoriate the effort. Uh, it passed 99 to 0 and then subsequently was embraced by the administration as the reason why Iran has come back to the negotiating table. So uh, let me ask, uh, under the sanctions heading of the agreement, paragraph 26 says, and I quote, the United States administration, acting consistent with the respective roles of the president and the Congress, will refrain from reintroducing or reimposing sanctions specified in Annex 2, which is basically the sanctions that this committee and the Congress pass, that it has ceased applying under the JPOA. So Secretary Liu, I read that to mean that we cannot reintroduce or reimpose the existing sanctions that Congress passed into law. Is that right? Senator, um, we, we uh, have been very clear that we retain our right and, and we will, if we need to, reimpose sanctions for reasons that are not nuclear if they live with the nuclear agreement and they violate other... No, I'm talking about existing so, nuclear sanctions which expire next yeah. year. If snapback provisions of the sanctions are to be an effective deterrent, as the administration has suggested, of Iranians breaking the agreement, will the administration agree to support the reauthorization of the existing sanctions that passed the Senate 99 to 0 and which expire next year? Yes so, or no? So let, let me be clear that the, 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 the sanctions um, that are being lifted if Iran complies, if they comply, we said we would not reimpose nuclear sanctions uh, if they live with a nuclear agreement. I know, but my point is this. If you're going to snap back, you got to snap back to something. But, but so yeah, if uh, you're not Senator, snapping back, Senator, the, that let me finish, back, Mr. Secretary. Yes, is Mr. Secretary, please don't 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 eat up my time. Yeah. I'm sorry, with all due respect, don't eat up but, my time. If in fact the sanctions which exist that you all heralded and said brought Iran to the table expire next year, 2016, and we don't reauthorize it. There is nothing, at least in that context, to snap back to. So why won't you simply say that the administration supports, under all the same provisions, including the president's waivers, the uh, reauthorization of those sanctions so that the so, Iranians know, if they violate, that the snapback will also include snapback to what the Congress passed? Senator, what I said earlier was that right now the sanctions remain in effect. We have a, a regime in effect. If Iran complies, we will lift sanctions. 
And it's premature to talk about extending a law that this is expires not expires next year. Ron's obligations go out at least eight years before the ratification of the additional protocol. And that ratification only takes place if the Congress lifts yeah. the sanctions. So I, I don't understand and how we ultimately have a credible belief that snapback means something if, in fact, you're not going to have the ability to have those sanctions in place. Let me ask uh, this to the Secretary. Is the President willing to make a clear and unequivocal statement, not that all options are on the table because Iran does not believe that that is a credible military threat. I think if you asked our intelligence community, that's what they would say to you, that under no circumstances will Iran be uh, permitted to acquire a nuclear weapon. Secretary Kerry? But that's the, uh, Did you hear my question? I apologize. I was just trying Let to Let me ask you, this is that. my question. Is President Obama willing to make a clear and unequivocal statement, not that all options are on the table, because I think if you talk to our intelligence people, they will tell you Iran does not believe that there is a credible military threat, that Iran, under no circumstances, will be permitted to acquire a nuclear weapon? Absolutely. Okay. He has said that in many times. Well, no, he said all options are on the table. I hope he makes that clear. And the president has statement. said very clearly, under no circumstances will they be allowed to get a nuclear weapon. And in fact, uh, I think Ash Carter uh, reiterated publicly, very specifically on the thing. But can okay, I just no, say, let me, no, 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 please. I'm sorry. Let me, let answer, me go. Right? I have limited time. You've been with the Iranians no, two years. Time, I have seven minutes. So. I know, but it's uh, worthy. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, let me ask you this. I'm seriously concerned about the lifting of the arms embargo that creeped its way into this deal. As I read the Security Council resolution on page 119, the ban on Iranian ballistic missiles has, in fact, been lifted. The new Security Council resolution is quite clear. Iran is not prohibited from carrying out ballistic missile work. The resolution merely says, quote, Iran is called upon not to undertake such activity. Yeah. Now, previously, in Security Council Resolution 1929, the Council used mandatory language, where it said, quote, it decides that Iran shall not undertake any activity related to ballistic missiles capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Why would we accept inferior language that changes the mandatory shall to a permissive call upon? We often call upon a lot of countries to do or stop certain actions in the UN, but that doesn't have the force of shall not, which has consequences if you do. Can you answer simply, is Iran banned banned from ballistic missile work for the next eight years? They are... No. Well... No. They, look, you want to answer, Senator? I, yes, I will answer That is it. not accurate. Yeah. Uh, the exact same language that is in the embargo is in the agreement with respect to launches, and that is under Article 25 of the UN, and that is exactly where it is today. In the, in the language. But in addition to that, Iran did not want it, and we insisted on it. They are restrained from any sharing of missile technology, purchase of missile technology, exchange of missile technology, work on missiles. They cannot do that under Article 41, which is Chapter 7, and mandatory. And it does have the language. Well, held. it seems. So it we seems exactly I'm, I'm reading to you. I'm reading to you from the Security Council resolution, 
that was adopted codifying yes. the, the agreement. Security Council and, resolution. And that Security Council resolution says, says Iran, Mr. Secretary, I'm reading yeah. you explicit language. I'm not making this up. Iran is called upon Correct. not to undertake that that's activity. That's the Article that's far, 25, that's far which different is exactly than shall not. Senator, that's exactly what it is today. That's right. the same language as is in the embargo now. And we transferred it to this, and that's what it is. Not but the same language that, as, as Security Council Resolution 1929. I mean, I, I don't know why you wouldn't just keep the same language, which made it clear that you shall not, and because there shall not exist, there are consequences if you do. Mr. Mr. Chairman, final question. I heard Senator Risch, who, uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, Parcheen. You know, the whole purpose of understanding the military dimensions of what happened in Parcheen is not for Iranians to declare culpability, but in fact to understand how far they got along in their weaponization efforts. General Hayden, who was the CIA director, said, we have estimates, but they're just that. Is it true that the Iranians are going to be able to take the sample, as Senator Rich said, because chain of custody means nothing if at the very beginning what you're given is chosen uh, and derived by the perpetrator. Well, as you know, Senator, that is uh, a classified component of this. It's supposed to be discussed in a classified session. We're perfectly prepared to fully brief you in classified session with respect to what will happen. Uh, Secretary Moniz has had his team uh, red team that effort, and he has made some additional add-ons to where we are. But it's part of a confidential agreement between the IAEA and Iran as to how they do it. The IAEA has said that they are satisfied that they will be able to do this in a way that does not compromise their needs and that adequately gets the answers that they need. We've been briefed well, on it. We're happy to brief you. My time you. is up, but if that is so true, I'd like Secretary if that Moniz is true, that would be the equivalent of the fox guarding the chicken coop. That's, uh, Senator, I'm not confirming how it's happening. I'm simply saying to you that we are confident the IAEA has the ability to be able to get the answers that they need, and Secretary Moniz can speak quickly to that for a moment if he may. But also, uh, do you want to say anything else? Chairman? Sure. Uh, yes, as Secretary Kerry said, the, uh, this is a, uh, a roadmap worked out uh, between the IAEA and uh, and uh, Iran. Uh, they have uh, we we do not have the, the those uh, documents that are as is the customary uh, confidential between the country and the uh, and the agency. Uh, but clearly, uh, they have uh, they know that they must uh, have and be able to articulate a process with integrity uh, in terms of uh, making, uh, making the measurements uh, and being able to analyze them through their, uh, their own laboratories and the network of laboratories, including U.S. laboratories, uh, that uh, do the analysis of these kinds of uh, samples. Now, let me just say, uh, burning up part of my seven minutes, uh, you need to go down and have that meeting. It'll take about five seconds. Okay, you need to go down and meet with Secretary Moniz and get that answer. I'll also add that uh, we, as a nation, um, don't even have a copy. Sec uh, Senator Cardin and I have asked for this. We don't even have a copy of the agreement to even understand 
You'll understand this very quickly in about five seconds with the secretary. But we don't even have a copy of the agreement to ascertain on behalf of the American people whether the IAEA process, which, again, you should go look into this part of it, has any integrity. So um, it's very disappointing, and I know Senator Cardin and I— Mr. Chairman, this, this is a very important point, so let me agree with you. The, document in, the documents in question are traditional between the country and the IAEA and are kept confidential between the country, in this case Iran, and IAEA, but it is part of the JCPOA in regards the possible military dimensions, which are critical for us to have baseline in order to deal with moving forward. So it's a very important part. Of it. And from what we can tell, if we can get eyes on that document, it may answer some of our questions. Uh, Secretary Moniz has reached conclusions, and he's greatly respected in that regard. But I think transparency would help us all better understand that, and I would just hope that in a confidential setting, there would be an opportunity to review those documents. Senator Johnson. Mr. Mr. Chairman. Uh, Not, we're going to move on. Senator Johnson, thank you. Let, let me just make the comment. How, how can that be confidential, and why would that be classified? Now, I, okay, I, I can see IAEA having those confidential uh, agreements with normal powers. Iran is not a normal nation. Uh, largest state sponsor, terror, and we rushed to the United Nations, had this deal approved, and we don't even understand how those samples are going to be collected and the, the chain of custody. I mean, it's unbelievable. Secretary Kerry, um, I've heard this deal described as historic. Uh, I won't use Vice President Biden's full, full uh, terminology, but this is a big deal, correct? This is a big deal, right? It's an important agreement. Uh, during our unfortunately limited debate on the Iranian Nuclear Agreement Review Act, I offered a couple of amendments, tried to offer a third, but one was, quote, treaty, because I think it's such a big deal it rises that level where two-thirds of the Senate should affirmatively approve such a big historic deal. That, that unfortunately, that amendment failed. I never got a vote on my next step in the process is let's deem this a congressional executive agreement. We all, both chambers, you said both chambers ought to be involved, would have to affirmatively prove this with just a simple majority vote. The third amendment I tried to offer really reflected what we actually ended up getting in this very convoluted process of, 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 of a vote of disapproval, which would have been a congressional executive agreement with a low threshold of approval of only 34 votes. Now, the parliamentarian, I think, very appropriately said, no, that's out of order. That's unconstitutional. And yet, that's what we have. My question to you is, if you were so confident this is such a great deal, why wouldn't have you been supportive of allowing the American people to be involved in the decision through their elected representatives as to whether or not that was by just allowing both chambers to have a simple vote of approval rather than this convoluted process, which, let's face it, you're quite confident you're going to win this. You've run to the, you've run to the United Nations Security Council. Convince me that this, what we're going through right now, isn't just a big charade, because I'm afraid that's exactly what this is. But again, please tell me, why wasn't this administration, if you're so confident this is such a great deal, why didn't you allow this body, this Congress, the ability to at least affirmatively vote to approve this deal? It wasn't my decision. Well, the administration certainly, certainly did not offer any kind of support for a more robust 
review process. And you certainly circumvented this Congress by running and, and uh, undermining our review process by having the Security Council approve this. Isn't that true? Well, Senator, on the contrary, this, this is a long time honored process for several centuries of executive of uh, political agreements between countries. So this is way more than political agreement. I, I, I want to go on. Secretary okay. Moniz. If Iran wants a peaceful nuclear program, there's no reason for them to have to enrich uranium, is there? Well, I think the, uh, uh, clearly there is uranium available on the international market. There you go. That's, that's but it's, but it's so, also the so, case so that many countries support their nuclear program uh, with, with enrichment. And, uh, but there, again, if they want a right. purely peaceful program, there's no need for them to enrich uranium. In the past when, for example, South Africa and Libya gave up their nuclear programs to be welcomed into the world of nations in a more normal fashion, like Iran supposedly wants, they completely gave up their enrichment. They, we dismantled that. That's what we demanded, correct? Uh, I, I believe that's the case, uh, certainly with, with South Africa. Uh, their whole weapons program was, because they had a weapons program that was, that was dismantled. So and, and, and if I may add, by the way, relative to the last discussion, uh, the, discu the documents of uh, the IAEA and South Africa in a full nuclear weapons dismantlement program remain confidential. Are you familiar with uh, the EMP Commission's 2008 report? Uh, no, I'm not, sir. You're not? You, uh, Which, do, you, do, you know, do you know what EMP is? Uh, You'll have to explain it to me, please. Electromagnetic pulse. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, whose report, I'm sorry, is this? The, the 2008 EMP Commission. No, I'm not, sir. I, I'm, I'm just not. I apologize. Um, I can respond for the record if you have a question there. Okay, and, and I will get, send you a number of questions because the recommendations really were for the Department of Homeland Security and for the Department of Energy. We just held a hearing. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Richard Garwin? Yes, absolutely. Okay, he testified before our committee. Everyone is. <laughs> Good. He testified before our committee uh, yesterday in combination with the CIA former director, uh, James Woolsey, about the threat of EMP. And one of the reasons I thought I'd hold that hearing is now with what I believe you know, disputable. Nobody knows how this is all going to game out, but I think the inevitable conclusion of this deal is just like North Korea, eventually Iran will have a nuclear weapon, plus they already have ballistic missile technology. Are you aware of the fact that Iran has practiced ship-launch EMP attacks using SCUD missiles? No, I am not, sir. No. They have done that according to Dr. Peter Vincent Pry. So an EMP attack, of course, would be conducted by somebody like North Korea or Iran, and it could be conducted from a ship off our coast using a Scud missile. And the fact that you as the Secretary of the Department of Energy are not even aware of the 15 recommendations, basic recommendations, uh, things like evaluating and implement quick fixes in the event of an EMP attack. The fact that Richard Garwin in front of our testimony said that for literally 20 to 70 million dollars, we, we could protect 700 critical transformers that could help us recover from something like that. I'm highly concerned. Well, sir. As, as you, Secretary of, of, of Energy, uh -huh. not even aware of these recommendations that were made public in 2008. Seven years later, in, in testimony for our committee, we have done nothing, virtually nothing, to address these 15 recommendations by the commission. Well, first of all, if I may say, I, and again, I don't know that report, and uh, the, uh, uh, clearly many of them must 
apply to DHS and DOD. However, on the transformer question, actually, if you look at our quadrennial energy review published in April, uh, we do identify uh, EMP as a risk to transformers, and we are beginning to try to work up uh, a response to that. Seven years later, we've done virtually nothing to protect ourselves. So again, in light of this deal, my point being, and we'll, we'll provide a number of questions on the record to, mm -hmm. to uh, uh, make sure that we start taking action on that to, to provide some protection. My final, my final comment is we've heard, you know, 50 billion to 100 billion, 104 billion dollars. I mean, you know, in, in, our, in our terms, doesn't really seem like that much, but it's 13%, 13% of Iran's economy. You know, if, 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 for example, the American economy had an interjection of 13% of our economy, that'd be, that'd be $2.4 trillion. So this isn't chump change. And we've already seen exactly what kind of actor Iran is on the world stage. So again, I can't predict this whole thing out, but what basically this deal does is it interjects tens of billions, 13% up front of Iran's economy into the economy of the largest state sponsor of terrorism. And so where, when Senator Risch said, you know, we, we, you know we, we have them right where we want them, I mean, I agree. You know, we just certainly didn't want them with centrifuges, but this deal puts them in a far better position. This strengthens their hands. And from that standpoint, I'm, I'm highly concerned. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, could I respond yes. to, to, to the, the point about the, the uh, Iranian assets? Um, let's be clear what those assets are. It, it, it's not money we are giving to Iran. It's Iran's money that sits in other countries that was locked up because of international nuclear sanctions that were designed to bring them to the table to negotiate a nuclear agreement. So it, it, it all th th that we've gone through is trying to analyze what that is. It's not us giving them money. If there is a nuclear agreement that meets the criteria that, it, that the sanctions were designed to achieve, Th that was the reason they were locked up. There are competing demands for that, whatever it is, we think it's about $50 billion. <laughs> There's at least $500 billion of domestic demand. They can't possibly scratch the surface of that need. So we've never said that there isn't going to be a penny going to malign purposes. Under these sanctions, they've managed to find money to put into malign purposes. But I would not exaggerate how much uh, that's going to change things. The assessment that we have, that our intelligence community has, is that it will not be a change in, in direction, that it will, be, it will be on the margin, not uh, the kind of uh, increase that you're describing. And by the way, Senator. Before, before moving to Senator Sheen, I, I do want to say that while we've lifted, uh, we haven't lifted ourselves sanctions on the IRGC, which, by the way, has the nuclear file and is the entity that carries out all of the terrorism on behalf of Iran. What we uniquely did was we lifted sanctions on all the financial institutions they deal with. They're going to be the number one beneficiary of the sanctions lifting. So we, we didn't lift sanctions on them. It's like not lifting sanctions on a holding company, but we lifted sanctions on the entities that feed them the money that through the economic growth, the shipment of oil, and all the things they do will empower them on, way on top of this. This is almost chump change compared to what will happen over this next decade. And so uh, I would like to say that. Senator Shane. Mr. Mr. Chairman, could, could I just respond? We are not lifting sanctions on a bank like Bank Satterat that was, was sanctioned for reasons related to terrorism. 
we have retained the ability but, but to many other bank. many other banking entities and, but, and others that they rely upon we have but those entities if they violate the, the the terms of our sanctions and our regime for sanctions on terrorism could be sanctioned we have not said that any of those institutions yeah. are, are uh, you know are yeah. protected and in terms of the snap act the point that you know senator menendez ended up concluding is not correct we have enormous tools with or without the iran sanctions act to snap back sanctions uh, through the NDAA sanctions on oil and financial institutions. Okay, and well, I just point well out? I, I'd just like to move to Senator Sheen by saying they disagree with that. Great Britain disagrees with that. Germany disagrees with that. France disagrees with that. The EU just disagrees. I talked to you about this last night. The, the tools that we have through the nuclear file are not available to be applied. Senator Menendez tried to pursue that. The other countries disagree. As a matter of fact, most of the most, the most accurate assessment of this deal from what I've been able to read has been coming from Iran. But if Iran violates it, those sanctions can come back on nuclear. And if they do things that violate terrorism sanctions, we have the ability to sanction on other grounds. So it is not a fair conclusion that institutions that continue to engage in yeah. funding terrorism or, or regional uh, destabilization are immune from those kinds of sanctions. It's just not correct. I stand by my assessment, as do the other countries who negotiated the deal with you. Actually, the Senator other countries, Shane. Senator Mr. Chairman, Shane, I'm just going to stop. We'll, we'll get to this second, Senator Shane. Um, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you to our witnesses for your testimony today, and to the negotiating team for um, the tremendous effort that it took to get us to this point. I, I, before I ask my questions, and I, I do actually have questions, um, I, I just want to say that I don't think it's to the benefit of this committee, this Congress, or the American people for any of us to impugn the motives or intellect of anybody involved in this discussion. I, I think people have strong views about how they feel, and it's appropriate to express those views, but to, because someone disagrees with you, to suggest that their motives are not in the best interest of this country or that um, their intellect is questionable, I think does not advance the debate in a way that it should be advanced. So, Mr. Chairman, I appreciate you and the ranking member and hope that um, we will keep this debate in a civil um, discussion. I also want to point out for the record that everybody on this committee voted for the Iran Nuclear Review Act of 2015. It was unanimous, so while I'm sure all of us had concerns about everything, some of the provisions that were in it, it was voted for by the committee unanimously. Now, to go to my questions, I want to, Secretary Moniz, follow up on the issues that were raised with respect to the possible military dimensions of the past Iranian nuclear activities. Because that's an area where I certainly am not clear about how we can be confident that the IAEA is going to be able to get the information that it needs to complete its investigation. So can you speak to that uh, a little bit and talk about um, why you believe that we're going to have the information that we need? Well, again, Senator, um, uh, really all I can say is that the, I mean, the IAEA is uh, very, very strong technically. I might add that every inspector 
since like 1980 has been trained at uh, at Los Alamos National Laboratory in terms of nuclear materials measurement uh, techniques, etc. Uh, they have a, a very strong reputation, which frankly they they need to guard uh, to make sure that they have a process with integrity. Uh, again, it is their responsibility. There is nothing unusual here. There's no side agreement. Uh, this is this is the way it works. The IAEA negotiates with with the country. What we have achieved in the negotiation is to get Iran to the table with them because without satisfying their requirements uh, by October 15th to, uh, to satisfy the, the agency, uh, there will not be any, any agreement going forward. Uh, that, that's, that's very clear. So uh, after years of stiffing them, to be perfectly honest, to use a technical term, uh, then what we've done is we forced them to the table. Uh, they went to Tehran. Uh, not just the director general, but the senior people who do safeguards, et cetera, uh, and they came back and uh, and uh, feel that they have a process with integrity. Now, again, uh, in this environment, I can only say that the, uh, and I would say flat out, I mean, I personally have not seen those documents that the chairman, chairman referred to. I had something of an oral briefing, uh, a, a general one. Uh, with that, uh, we have assembled a uh, national lab team uh, to think through the kinds of process that we anticipate and to recommend uh, uh, steps that might uh, mitigate any risks. But again, ultimately, that we, we rely upon the IAEA. They will make a report. The Director General has uh, committed to trying to get that out this year, this calendar year. Uh, and of course, that report is then where one, one will see uh, the, what their conclusions are and what the basis for their conclusions are. And Senator we'll Sheen, can I get this to you somehow, Mr. Chairman? This is the IAEA Board of Governors Roadmap. It's a letter we have submitted with all of the documents to you, but it lays out the agreement between Iran and uh, uh, between Iran and the IAEA as to what they're going to do and when and how. That would be helpful, and could we have it introduced for the record? I would like that very much. Um, and can I also ask, once, either before or after that report is produced, will the intelligence community, either here or in um, our other partner countries, um, weigh in and assess whether they believe that that report reflects an accurate uh, discussion of Iran's past activities? Well, I would have to defer to the intelligence community for their, uh, their reactions, but I can assure you that our DOE experts are going to be looking over this uh, uh, very, very carefully. Thank you. And Secretary Liu, can you commit that there will be no sanctions relief? I think you've said this, but just to be clear again, until um, Iran has provided the IAEA with this information? and the access that's required? Absolutely, Senator. Until Iran has completed all of its obligations, uh, we will not be relieving any of the U.S. sanctions, nor will the international sanctions be uh, relieved. And I don't know who wants to respond to this, either Secretary Moniz or Secretary Kerry, but at the time we began the negotiations, what was the best estimate of our intelligence community about the time for Iran to break out with a nuclear weapon? The best estimate was two to three months. And was there agreement among our intelligence agencies about that estimate? By, yes, pretty much. And there was a disagreement actually with a couple of other countries, but there was not disagreement in our intel community. And as we look at if this agreement goes into effect, 
Is there an estimate from our intelligence community about how long it might take to get to a nuclear weapon at the end of this agreement if Iran decides to pursue that option at the end of Well, there's a distinction, years? Senator. The breakout time, as it is used in this negotiation, is, an, is a hybrid of the traditional understanding of breakout time. Breakout time in arms control has usually been referred to as the time it takes to get a weapon. Uh, we have been dealing only with the amount of time it takes to get enough fissile material to produce one weapon. You still have to produce the weapon, and I, most people don't guesstimate that a country is going to be satisfied with only one weapon and enough fissile material for one. So there's a lot of time beyond that. So we've been operating with a huge safety cushion here, uh, and we will have one year of breakout time for fissile material for one weapon for at least 10 years. And then it begins to tail down, but not as a cliff. It begins to tail down as we go through the next five years. Um, and then we are, indeed, arriving at a point where Iran has uh, hopefully achieved normal status in the NPT. I say hopefully, because if they haven't, the agreement has not worked in, in the sense that they violated it, and we've gone back to snap back and have the sanctions back in place. And, and again, can you answer whether all of our intelligence agencies are agreed on that particular breakout period, or is there a difference of opinion? No, our intelligence community and the Energy Department well, and everybody worked this very, very hard, and it's a very precise formula which feeds in uh, the most rapid possible rate by, by looking at uh, the numbers of centrifuges, all kind, the amount of, of enrichment, the capacity for enrichment, I mean, all of the many, many factors that come into it. It's a complicated formula, uh, and um, everybody's it, in agreement as to where we are. It also includes capacity to rebuild all the infrastructure that they're taking out. Uh, and I might just add that uh, beyond the 15 years where there are very severe constraints, like on the enrichment stockpile, uh, in terms of, of uh, visibility, I remind you that for 20 years, there is still the containment and surveillance activities for any centrifuge uh, sensitive parts manufacturing. They will all be tracked, uh, labeled, tracked, et cetera. Uh, and uh, for 25 years, the uranium, uh, the uranium transparency. So it's like follow the uranium and, and the centrifuges. Thank you. My time has expired. Thank you all. Thank you. I might add the president was really clear that in year 13, there's zero breakout and begin industrialization at year eight. Uh, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, think, I don't agree with that characterization, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony. I hope you'll uh, take these questions in the spirit that they're given. I'm not looking to play gotcha at all. Uh, I've been supportive of these negotiations. So I commend you all for, for the hard work that's been done. But there is uh, some disagreement here, it seems, with the text of the agreement as we read it and the explanation uh, that's given. And uh, let me just cover a couple of these points. Um, number eight, on adoption day here in the annex for the implementation plan, it says Iran will officially inform the IAEA that, effective on implementation day, Iran will provisionally apply the additional protocol pending its ratification by the parliament, the, and, uh, the Iranian parliament, and will fully implement uh, the modified code 3.1. Um, we, we've talked about the agreement, although it's voluntary, to uh, live by the additional protocol. 
what happens if the parliament, uh, first, what is the timetable that's required for the parliament to address uh, the, uh, the uh, additional protocol? They have, Senator, they have to live by the additional protocol from Understood. the moment of adoption. Understood. But, and but they going have, forward... They, they have eight years, within eight years, to adopt it formally within... But they are in material breach as of adoption day if they do not live by it. And it is fully understood by everybody that would be a material breach. But there is no timetable where the parliament has to They have to, to do it within it. the eight years. Within the eight years? Yes. Okay, so that's the timetable. Uh, second. Um, Which is the, before the sanctions are lifted. So you have the snapback capacity as a result of their not doing it. Understood. Or living by it. Understood. Uh, in this December of 2011, the president uh, signed into law the NDAA uh, that included sanctions on Iran's central bank. Uh, these uh, sanctions penalized foreign uh, financial institutions that, that were doing business with Iran's central bank. Um, these sanctions will ultimately be suspended uh, because of the JCPOA. What I'm trying to understand, and this keys off a question that was asked by Senator Cardin and others, we, uh, according to the agreement, the U.S. administration acting consistent with the respective roles of the President and the Congress will refrain from reintroducing or reimposing the sanctions specified in Annex II that it has ceased applying under the JPOA without prejudice to the dispute resolution process. Um, this is what I think a lot of us are having a hard time reconciling here. What would constitute uh, reintroducing, reimposing sanctions specified? Uh, existing sanctions. If, because Iran didn't violate the nuclear part of the agreement, but for other reasons, committed terrorism abroad, abducted Americans, and we wanted to penalize them, we wanted to sanction them, uh, could we impose sanctions on Iran's central bank? Um, because that would mimic or be similar to what was done before, uh, but it would be in a different context. Would that be allowed, or would that uh, lead to some violation on our part of the agreement? Uh, yeah. Secretary Liu. Yeah. Can I, I'm going to take a stab at this because we've been going around on it, and I want to try to, if I can, um, answer it dispositively. First of all, we will not violate the JCPOA if we use our authorities to impose sanctions on Iran for terrorism, human rights, missiles, or any other non-nuclear reason. And the JCPOA does not provide Iran any relief from U.S. sanctions under any of those authorities or other authorities, mind you, and I'll go through some of those other authorities. What we have committed to do is quite specific. Iran was fearful that having witnessed the hot desire within the Congress for more sanctions, that even if we cut an agreement, you folks might just turn around the day after and say, too bad, we're coming back with all the same sanctions. And then the president's in veto status or override status or whatever. So what they really wanted was a clarity that, that we're not going to reimpose the specific nuclear-related sanction provisions as specified in Annex 2 to the JCPOA, contingent on them abiding by the commitments of the agreement. So it's really simply a clarification to them that we're not going to come back and just slap a bun again. But, 
That absolutely does not mean we are precluded from sanctioning Iranian actors, sectors, or any actions if circumstances warrant. So all of our other sanctions authorities remain in place. They're unaffected by this agreement. And, and Iran only said, if you read what it says, that they would treat the imposition of new nuclear-related sanctions as the grounds to cease performing. But they are clear, and we are clear, that we have all other kinds of authorities. And let me be specific on that, because it's important for this whole debate to, to, to be clear. Even with the lifting of sanctions after eight years on missiles, or five years on arms, or the UN sanctions, it's only the UN sanctions. We still have sanctions. Our primary embargo is still in place. We are still sanctioning them. And I might add, for those things that we want to deal with in terms of their behavior, for instance, Hezbollah, uh, there is a UN resolution, 1701, that prevents the transfer of any weapons to Hezbollah. That will continue, and yeah. what we need to do is make sure we're enforcing yeah. it. I think we, we've got that. I just want to make sure that if, if we say, all right, what was effective on Iran, what really has brought them to the table more than anything else, in my view, are these sanctions on the central bank, because it's more difficult for Russia, China, and other actors to help them evade these sanctions. If we decided, if we want to impose penalties to, to deter them from terrorist activity, and we impose sanctions on their central bank, that that won't be a material breach of the accord. No, that will not. All right, one other question on the broader uh, topic. Assuming this goes into effect, uh, we're going to need, desperately need, a regional security framework that you've touched on and uh, some discussions are already going on. I would just in, encourage you that I understand the problem with 535 secretaries of state, uh, can't have that, but I would encourage you to reach out to at least the relevant committees here as that framework is put in place to make sure that it can endure uh, longer than just you know, the first couple of years in an agreement. Uh, we all know that uh, to have the institutional fortitude to move ahead, it's best to have Congress involved. And there, is a, there, is, there are many points between 535 secretaries of state and, and proper consultation uh, with the relevant committees, at least, of jurisdiction here. And so that I, I would couldn't just, uh, concur more, Senator. I think you're absolutely dead on. We agree. Um, and by the way, I think in the course of this negotiation, prior to the passage of the, of the requirement for the 60 days, which we understand, and joined in with working with the chairman, and we're grateful to the chairman for the cooperation on that. But there were a huge number of, of of briefings and hearings and telephone calls and meetings and so forth, literally in the hundreds. But I come back to this. I couldn't agree with you more about this new arrangement. We are talking about arms transfers, about special operations training, about counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. Uh, we have a major need here to build capacity in many of those countries. The, the Gulf states spend about $130 billion a year on their defense. Iran spends 15 billion, yet you see a disparity in terms of what's happening within the region. That has to be addressed, and that's the purpose of uh, our initiative. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator, and I too appreciate you joining in with us about an hour and a half uh, before our vote on that agreement. Um, Senator Udall. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and uh, let me also just echo what everyone said. I very much appreciate the negotiators and the team, and, and especially uh, give a shout out to Wendy Sherman. Uh, I'd also like to just recognize, I don't think he's been recognized yet, our, our colleague, Senator Angus King of Maine, has been sitting here from the beginning very conscientiously, uh, like I think many senators are, either back in their offices or here in the audience to stay involved in this issue. Secretary Kerry and Secretary Liu and uh, Secretary Moniz, this is a very important deal, one based on verification and sound science. Those two areas are what I'd like to focus on today. As you know, the national labs in Tennessee, New Mexico, and California have played an important role, and I think it's important that we do the best job we can to explain to the American people why this deal meets the scientific rigors for preventing Iran from acquiring a bomb. So, Secretary Moniz, just as a baseline, can you tell the committee what the half-life of uranium and plutonium uh, are and what this means regarding how long we can detect its signature in nature and why that's important? You're creating the urge for a 50-minute nuclear physics lecture. I do, but, but I don't uh, want that. I don't the, want uh, that. I just, the half-life half of, uh, half of uranium-238, uranium which is the dominant isotope, uh, is roughly the age of the Earth, uh, five billion years. Uh, and, and that's why we still have it in the ground. Uh, uranium-235 is maybe a factor of 10 less, which is why it's a minor isotope now. Uh, plutonium is, uh, is much shorter, um, uh, 20,000 years probably, uh, which is why we don't have any of it naturally, and we have to make it in, in reactors. Okay. Iran cannot create a facility or, or enrich uranium or plutonium out of the thin air. The laws of physics, as you well know, uh, are clear. Energy and mass must be conserved, and through the IAEA, we will be able to detect illicit use at declared sites due to extensive monitoring. Do both of you believe that's correct, Secretary Kerry, yes. Secretary Moniz? Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and with regards to the worries about the 24-day requirement for undeclared sites, given the half-life of uranium and plutonium and the resources needed to construct a parallel enrichment capability, would you say it is scientifically possible to hide such work within 24 days? And do you believe we have the technical capabilities to determine if enrichment is being done outside the limits of the JCPOA? Oh, well, yes. Once again, we have the historical example from 2003 of precisely that happening uh, after six months easily finding, uh, finding uranium despite major efforts to, uh, to disguise it. And in addition, we will have all of the containment and surveillance for 20 years of all of the sensitive uh, parts uh, of every machine that they, that they make. And, and so people that have used the analogy that like in a drug crime, you flush it down the toilet and it's gone and we won't be able to find it, that hasn't in fact been proven out, has it? If they try that, we'll find it. <laughs> Good. Secretary Kerry Moniz, our nuclear experts at Oak Ridge, at Los Alamos, Sandia, Lawrence Livermore, They've given technical support throughout these negotiations. Are they confident that these verification measures, both the enhanced measures and those in the additional protocol, will enable the IAEA to detect an attempt to break out or sneak out in time for the international community to react? First of all, let me say that the National Lab scientists from the places you mentioned were really heroic. They were on constant call for 
literally hours turnaround in the, in the negotiating uh, sessions. And I've already alluded to the fact that your laboratory, Los Alamos, uh, has played a major role in the detection arena. So the answer is yes. I mean, in fact, the, those are the people who have invented many of the safeguards technologies that are going to be, be employed here. So, so um, it, it sounds to me like Iran could break the rules of this agreement, but they cannot break the rules of physics. And the international community has the know-how and the expertise to determine whether or not Iran is abiding by this deal and the non-proliferation treaty, not only during this phased agreement, but in, uh, into perpetuity under the non-proliferation treaty and the additional protocol to the NTP. Uh, would you agree with this assessment? And would the panel agree that if necessary, the U.S. and the P5 plus 1 would then have the ability to snap back sanctions and deal with the Iranian violations as appropriate in order to prevent them from acquiring a nuclear weapon? Well, I, uh, yes. I mean, again, we, we will have much greater transparency uh, from day one for, to forever than, than we would have without, without the agreement. Uh, that's, just, that's a fact. And then the sanctions, I think the answer, I'll, I'll venture the answer is yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, it, and then just finally, Secretary Kerry, one of the keys here, and you've heard all these questions, is implementation. How are we going to do implementation? And so I just ask in the broadest possible way how it's going to be done, who's going to be in charge, how are we going to make sure that when we get to the implementation phase that we really uh, do what needs to be done to make sure this is a success? Well, we already have created a, an implementation office, and uh, we have somebody uh, managing that at this point in time, it's, it's teamed up, uh, but will be even more so as we go forward. This is going to be a full-time operation. And it's not going to be left to a normal bureau. There will be a full-time Iran uh, agreement implementation effort uh, with uh, experienced and competent personnel staffing it. And I would just add, if I may, that under that umbrella of the administration-wide implementation team, we at DOE uh, and with our laboratories will have our own implementation team, and there will be some major jobs. For example, in the Annex 1, you will see alluded to a working group of the P5 plus 1 um, uh, on the Iraq reactor redesign, et cetera. Uh, we anticipate, uh, uh, obviously, uh, playing a leading role uh, in that group and, um, and making sure that the new reactor does only what uh, we have laid out, and, and the parameters are in the material you have. Good, and, and I, I just, I, I can't emphasize enough in terms of the national laboratories, especially the two in New Mexico, but all of them, uh, that they have worked on this, these kinds of activities and, and studied nuclear issues since the creation of the atomic bomb, and that's why they're in such a position to be able to give the technical advice to make well, sure me, this if, is a if success. I could, if, I, if I could just, John, just one second. If I could just reinforce that, I think it's very important. Uh, this is a pitch now for the National Labs uh, that this is not the capability you invent overnight because you needed it for this negotiation. It's got to be a consistent investment in our core nuclear capacity, and that's what we've been doing. Yeah. And by the way, uh, let me just emphasize, people like me, who obviously don't have that background, understood our limitations, and there isn't any decision made in this agreement, none, where we didn't go to our teams. In fact, there were days where we were delayed because we had to go back to the laboratories 
get the laboratory's input, get our experts' input, and make a judgment as to whether or not whatever judgment we made would in fact result in what we were seeking and, and be sustainable. And, and there isn't one technical decision within this agreement that hasn't been worked through the entire system in that regard. Thank, thank, thank you, Mr. Senator, you're right to be proud of your outstanding labs. I've visited them, as have many, and they're playing a huge role in this. And I thank you for, I thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to uh, the secretaries today for your time and, and testimony. I wanted to start with uh, Secretary Liu talking about uh, a number of individuals who will, by 2023, uh, and companies removed from U.S. sanctions list, and I hope that you could discuss several of them. Uh, what can you tell this committee about uh, Mr. Fakhrizadeh? Uh, uh, is it correct to describe him as the father of the Iran nuclear program? I, I would uh, defer to uh, Secretary Muniz, Secretary on, who is the father of the, the, the Iranian nuclear program. <laughs> That term, that term certainly has been applied to him, yes. Uh, what about uh, Mr. Abbasi? Is it accurate that the, UN, the United Nations blacklisted him in 2009 for allegedly being an aide to Fakhrizadi uh, and working on Iran's nuclear and ballistic missile programs receive relief by 2023? Senator, without commenting on each individual, if you go through the names of people who have been involved in Iran's nuclear program, um, any, any uh, step to remove sanctions that are related to the nuclear program will involve individuals and organizations that had been involved in Iran's nuclear program. Okay, and so a German, a German engineer, Gerhard Wieser, he was convicted and sentenced to 18 years in prison by a South African court in 2007 for his role in supplying centrifuge components to the AQCon black market network. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. I, 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 he, re he receives I, relief I, in 2023. I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to get into individual names. Um, well, why I, they're I think, listed in there for relief. Yeah, why would you be reluctant? Because as a, as a group, they all have the same characteristic. Which is what? Which is uh, they were designated because of nuclear activities. And now they and, have their and, sanctions relief by 2023. And to, to the extent that Iran keeps its agreement, we will be relieving nuclear sanctions if they don't keep their agreement, we won't be release, relieving nuclear sanctions. What message does this send to other proliferators around the world? I think that the, 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 the message is if you violate the rules and develop nuclear weapons and we and the world take action against you, it will have significant consequence. But if you reach an agreement and you unwind your nuclear program, that will also have consequence. And so could you please provide a list or names of Americans who have been released uh, as they have from sanctions or imprisonment at, of these negotiations? Um, there are none. We're happy to follow up with you on, on lists you might want. Uh, thank you. Uh, to Secretary Liu again, uh, following up on, I believe it was Senator Menendez's questions, uh, the Iran Sanctions Act under the JCPOA, as you understand it, if that act were simply to be extended, the date changed to 2018. Obviously, the national security waivers would still be in place by the president. Uh, is that something that Congress would pass, changing the date, 2016, 2018? Is that acceptable under the JCPOA? So we've obviously gone back and forth on that a few times. The, 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 the re-imposition of nuclear sanctions is something that if they comply with the nuclear agreement has a very different character than if they don't comply. And I think that right now they've agreed to take serious actions. We need to work towards the implementation of the agreement. What I was trying to say after the back and forth with Senator Menendez, we have a host of very powerful sanctions uh, 
We have tools that are not just and, in the And I heard you explain that to the Secretary Menendez. Those remain Senator available. Menendez. So Should if you don't mind, yeah. running out of time here, just, just to follow up on that. If, if Congress were to pass an extension to 2018, uh, obviously the national security waivers under this deal would still be in place. Would the president veto that legislation? Yeah. I, I, I think this is not the appropriate time to be discussing uh, extending a law before we've even uh, had the implementation period begin on this agreement. Do you think uh, that makes the snapback provisions uh, weaker or stronger if they're not there when the well, snapback? Well, that's what I was trying to get at. I think the snapback provisions are extremely powerful with or without the Iran Sanctions Act. Our oil sanctions, our financial sanctions have independent grounding. But you're prepared to, do, to have a snapback without the Iran Sanctions Act in place? I think the snapback would be very powerful with or without it. Uh, Mr. Uh, Secretary Kerry, in your testimony, you stated that uh, U.S. sanctions related to human rights, terrorism, ballistic missiles will remain in place. Your eight ballistic missile activities continue under the agreement. Uh, how do our sanctions, if they're ineffective, if the United States stands alone, um, slow down their ballistic missile programs by your eight? Well, the fact is that, regrettably, uh, they've been pursuing certain things without recourse. Um, and one of our determinations here is to up I think the president said this in the East Room when he was press conference the other day, that the active, for instance, they've been transferring weapons for 20 years to Lebanon, to Hezbollah, and there may be as many as 70 to 80,000 rockets now, we all know, uh, that are a threat to Israel. Uh, we need to, all of us, be engaged in a stronger effort to prevent the movement of these weapons. And so we by the lifting tools. the sanctions in year eight, no, 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 is Israel safer today under this provision with well, the ballistic missile embargo lifted? There is absolutely no question whatsoever that Israel is safer because Israel with, is going Let me rephrase with, with the embargo lifted, Israel is safer. With the, with the embargo, we're not lifting Year eight. Embargo. I can read you the, the Oh, in year eight, no. Well, we still have the missile. See, what you're not looking at, Senator, and what everybody needs to take note of is we have separate UN resolutions that apply to all those other activities, and we have separate um, regimes that apply to them. For instance, the missile control technology regime is a very powerful instrument. The security proliferation. Let me just, uh, let me, I understand, but I'm running out of time here. Well, I know, but, with but this UN language, with, I mean, the with the United Nations language. without an answer, we can all run out of time. With the United Nations language. Do you believe Israel is safer eight years with the embargo lifted under United Nations language than it is today? There is no question in my mind because we have the ability to put all kinds of other sanctions in place as well as enforce existing UN resolutions that apply to missiles and other things. You mentioned an article in the Washington Post, how the Iran deal is good for Israel, according to Israelis who know what they're talking about. Uh, do you believe Prime Minister Netanyahu, is cr highly critical of this deal, knows what he's talking about? Prime Minister, look, I respect and know Prime Minister Netanyahu very well. I consider him a friend. And he and I talk regularly. Uh, we're still talking even in the midst of this disagreement because we have a lot of things to talk about. I completely understand the Prime Minister of a state like Israel, which has been under siege and existentially threatened all of its life, that this is also a big challenge. And I understand the expressions of concern that he has voiced. We just happen to disagree about the impact of what is going to happen here and our ability to be able to safeguard Israel going forward through the mechanisms that have been put in place. There is absolutely no question whatsoever, indisputable, you can't argue, that taking a breakout time from two months to a year 
taking a 12,000 kilogram stockpile to zero, so, so you taking would, you a did centrifuge, not in this but I mean, you you've got to look at that. So, so according to Israelis, you know what they're talking about. You believe Prime Minister Netanyahu knows what he's talking about. I, 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 abs I, don't, I disagree with him on his But you know what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. He knows as Prime Minister the fear that he is expressing, absolutely. Uh, Secretary Moniz, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this correct. Uh, Ali Hinanen, uh, a former deputy director of the IAEA. We've talked a lot about the IAEA today. We've talked about the agreement that they have entered into that is not being disclosed to uh, the committee or the public uh, with Iran. His, he stated in the New York Times, quote, a 24-day adjudicated timeline reduces detection probabilities exactly where the system is weakest, detecting undeclared facilities and materials. Is he wrong? Uh, well, the 24-day thing is explicitly for undeclared, uh, undeclared facilities. Uh, and I've already expressed uh, uh, use of nuclear materials in those facilities. We are very confident about detection. Uh, we have to know where to look, and that's, of course, the traditional role of, of intelligence, uh, ours and, and those of, of our allies and friends. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, all for spending so much time with us here today. Um, one comment on this issue of non-nuclear sanctions and then uh, two questions. Um, the Iranians are worried that we are going to reimpose nuclear sanctions under the cover of some other excuse. Uh, thus, your discussion about the sensitivity of when we may reauthorize the Iran Sanctions Act. Um, I just note that what we're talking about here then is motive, um, whether or not we are genuine in imposing sanctions for a non-nuclear related activity or whether we are doing it under the cover of trying to get around the agreement. Um, I don't think there's any way to avoid the fuzziness um, of uh, that section of the agreement because Ultimately, there can be a dispute over motive, but I just think we all have to understand that there is going to be a, 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 a lack of clarity on that question, given the fact that the dispute ultimately is not going to be about the letter of the law that we pass, but about the motive that stands behind it. I think that we can certainly defend uh, inst instituting new sanctions on non-nuclear activity, but um, there's going to be a difficulty in trying to define that motive. Um, my question, though, is, um, First question is uh, continuing uh, on this subject of inspections. Um, Secretary Moniz, um, the Iranians have made a commitment here that they are not going to engage in any research and development that, quote, under item 16, could contribute to the development of a nuclear explosive device. We've talked about the eyes that we have on Fordow, on Natanz. We know we've got eyes on the full supply chain. There are a host of nuclear-related research activities that could occur at other research sites that don't involve material that runs through the supply chain. How do we have an assurance that there are no R&D activities um, occurring, uh, given the fact that there are going to be sites that we won't even be asking about, frankly, and there are research activities potentially that can happen um, that don't involve that nuclear material that we see in the supply chain inspections. Well, as I said, the, uh, the, uh, there are a number of activities that are listed there, uh, which, which are out of bounds, uh, that will not involve nuclear, uh, nuclear materials. Uh, 
clearly, again, by, almost by definition, for any undeclared site, it becomes a question of intelligence acquired in one way or another. And we have, obviously, nationally a lot of means, uh, as, do, as do others. Uh, so uh, once we have uh, the right pointer, uh, then it's a question of getting in there. And uh, there can be some smoking guns in some cases, uh, for example, around neutron initiators. Uh, that we would detect. In other cases, it will be um, more in the context of the declared activities don't kind of make sense with what we see in there. Uh, and these all become then additional indicators uh, for, for our intelligence. Uh, but, you know, I think our intelligence uh, people will, will say very straightforwardly that clearly, uh, in the end, these non-nuclear activities will be more of a challenge than the nuclear materials activities over which we'll have a very, very strong handle. Um, uh, I want to ask uh, Secretary Liu and uh, Secretary Kerry about the consequences of Congress voting down this deal. Um, I heard uh, uh, Senator Risch's frustration that he thinks that uh, the suggestion has been made by the administration that there's no choice. Um, in fact, I hear you to say the very opposite. I hear you to say, that this is not, in fact, a referendum on this deal. This is a choice between two set of consequences, a set of consequences that uh, flow forward if we approve the deal, and then a different set of consequences that flow forward if Congress rejects this deal. Um, and so as I look at that second set of consequences um, that we have to be fully cognizant of if the United States Congress rejects this deal, um, I sort of see it in five parts, and I, and I want to give this analysis to you and then ask you both to tell me where I'm wrong or where I might be right. Um, first, the sanctions are going to fray initially. The Russians and Chinese uh, likely won't continue to sign on, and over time likely will in substance fall apart. Second, Iran's going to be able to resume full operation of its nuclear program. It gets closer and closer to the breakout time. Three. The inspections that we have under the JPOA disappear, and we go blind again inside Iran. Fourth, this administration's ability to do nuclear diplomacy frankly ends for the next year and a half. There's no legitimacy uh, with uh, the clear indication that Congress won't support any agreements that this administration enters into. Uh, and fifth, the potential that internally this rejection of the deal will be a major victory for the hardliners making it much less likely that the moderates are going to win in the next election, meaning that there may not be anyone to deal with should we get back to the table in the next administration. Um, that's a pretty severe set of consequences, but um, this isn't ultimately a referendum. This is a choice, and if you uh, reject this deal, then you've got to be pretty apocalyptic about how badly this deal will go down if you accept those broad parameters uh, as the alternative. So uh, tell me if this is how you read uh, the consequences of Congress rejecting this deal. Well, Senator, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head with a series of absolutely uh, clearly anticipatable consequences. Of it. And I would agree with what you have said. I mean, this is not a case of no choices. There are, there's a choice. And as, as Senator Murphy has said, there's a, you know, each person can make the judgment about the consequences of their choice. But the choice is really between the assurances we have that come with this agreement 
The certainty that comes with a 98% reduction of a stockpile, the certainty that comes from a limitation of 3.67% of enrichment for 15 years, you can't make a bomb with just those two items, let alone the reduction of centrifuges, the limitation on what's spinning, the intrusive inspections, all that goes away. So that's the choice. You want to wipe all that out. But what else happens as a result of that? Well, I, I urge colleagues who haven't done it to spend time with our intel community and ask for the analysis of the Supreme Leader and of the state of politics in Iran. The Supreme Leader highly distrusts us, and we highly distrust in return. There's nothing in this agreement built on trust. It's all a matter of verification. But the Supreme Leader has felt in the very beginning, I can't deal with the West because I can't trust them. I tried it before, and nothing happened. And then there were some small discussions that took place in Afghanistan a number of years ago with ambassadors. Nothing came out of it. Uh, I can give you, I'm not going to go through the whole history, but there's a long history of mistrust, and much deeper than that, the whole context of the revolution out of which the regime comes. So if we say no, after saying in good faith, we're here to negotiate and we can come to agreement, but we walk away from it, not because we chose to, but you choose to, they won't know who to deal with. We certainly aren't going to be dealt with. A lot of other people won't know who to deal with. But more importantly, he's not coming back. There's no way people who say, get a better deal. No way. When they believe they've given up things in good faith and made proclamations about no nuclear weapon forever, and they're willing to be subject to the NPT. The NPT is at the heart of nonproliferation centers. We have 189 nations that live by it. We would be turning away from the NPT. That's part of what this vote would be. Basically saying, we don't trust the NPT, we don't like the NPT, there's no way Iran could come under the NPT, we're not going to do this. So the consequences of this are even more than what you laid out, Senator, and here's what else happens. I, I know this will happen. You know, been around politics long enough, have a pretty good sense. I mean, a lot of people were out there opposing this agreement before it was announced. A lot of people were opposing it before they read it. So I know what we're going to hear in the context of this. If this agreement isn't passed, isn't, isn't agreed to, it doesn't meet Congress's approval, and the sanctions are gone, and Iran goes back to enriching, you can hear the hue and cry right now. People are going to be saying, well, what are we going to do about it? They're enriching. You'll hear the Prime Minister of Israel calling you up, time to bomb. What are we going to do? That's why learned people who led security establishments in Israel say that's probably the alternative here. So when they're enriching like crazy and we've passed up diplomacy and we've passed up the non-proliferation treaty, what is left to us to enforce this? I know there are senators here who are uncomfortable with the idea that they may have an industrial enrichment program. So what's your plan? Knock out their entire capacity? Erase their memory of how to do a fuel cycle? Totally go to war? I heard somebody mention Iran earlier, that we, Iraq, right. that we had huge, uh, uh, you know, ability to know what was happening in Iraq. Folks, that was after we invaded the country and completely defeated their army. Yeah, then we had anywhere, anytime. That's the only place in the world you've had it. No country in the world has anywhere, anytime. 
So I just ask people to be reasonable. There are more consequences than those laid out by Senator Murphy, but each one of the ones he laid out are pretty consequential. Senator Murphy, if I could just respond yeah, just uh, on the sanctions point. I agree with you that sanctions would, fr would fray, but I think in addition, you know, we've had a lot of discussion about uh, Iran's reserves. We have to remember that those reserves are not sitting in the United States. They're sitting around the world in countries like India and China. And if this agreement falls apart, our ability to keep that money from Iran will also fall apart. So I think the concern is they get their money and there's no nuclear agreement and all the other consequences. So that's very real. And with regard to your comment on um, our ability to reimpose sanctions, I totally agree with you. If it's seen as a pretext for putting nuclear sanctions back in place, then that violates the, the, the agreement. But we have reserved the ability to put sanctions back in place on terrorism and uh, for other reasons. And my only point on that is there is an inherent fuzziness. It is inherently, it's a matter of, of, of yeah. interpretation, which is why people can say uh, that they have different views. But this was heavily discussed in the negotiation. It's not as if this was some uh, accidental uh, provision. Thank you. And I, I think the thought process that you walked through was very helpful. And I, I, uh, I do want to say that Congress, in this case, did put in place many of the mandate, uh, many of the sanctions that brought Iran to the table. And what I think is, to a degree, unfair about the presentation is the secretary himself uh, afforded himself the ability to walk away from this deal and face all of these same consequences uh, during the negotiations. Uh, you said that. Uh, uh, no deal was better than a bad deal, and at many times you laid out the percentage chances of this happening. So you yourself, you yourself had to be thinking about going down the very path that Senator Murphy just put out. But, but, but what you're yeah. doing, what you're doing, what you did by going to the UN Security Council and by by laying this out in the way you are, basically, even though we put mandates in place that brought them to the table. You're trying to paint this picture that basically takes that choice away from us, and I find that to be uh, incredibly unfair. So, uh, um, Mr. Chairman, can I just say to you, the choice would have been the same whether or not the Security Council had voted. It's the exact same I, choice. I, and the great distinction here, with all due respect, sir, the great distinction here is that when I was ready to walk away, everybody else would have come with me because they understood the walk away was the intransigence of Iran. So we would have walked away and held the unity of the sanctions and we could have then done more. Or if we had to resort to military, people would have understood why. The problem is now they won't understand why and we won't walk away yeah. with anyone. That's the problem. And I don't want to put too much emphasis on the UN Security Council issue Monday, but I'll, I'll go back to the other and say that again, the way you present the options, you've put Congress in the place of being the pariah, taking that away from Iran being it. And I think the way you frame it uh, put Congress in a, in a very unfair light. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'll go one step further. I'm outraged. I think um, by the administration going to the United Nations before we actually have a chance to even read the document and go forward in these discussions, in a good faith, bipartisan manner, we're showing the world that we don't stand together right now. And that's what this is all about. That's why we fought for the last few months in this committee. And I'm so encouraged that we ended up with a unanimous vote in this committee and a 98 to 1 vote in the Senate 
to go back to the balance of, of power between the legislative and the executive branch. I'm encouraged that Senator King is here, sitting here for four hours, three hours this morning, four hours almost, listening to this. Um, people are involved in this, Senator and uh, Mr. Secretary, and, and I appreciate what you guys have done. This is a yeoman's job you've had, a, a huge task. Um, Mr. Secretary, you've played hurt the last few months in this thing. Thank you for, for all your effort. I per personally have tried to take a very measured approach in this, to try to understand the issues, to try to understand what we were trying to achieve. I've heard Secretary of State say that our goal is to preclude Iran from ever becoming a nu nuclear weapon state. Um, but I'm very troubled today. Um, I I'm, I'm look at this somewhat skeptical because of the um, uh, Mr. Liu, our Secretary Liu, I'm not sure what I said was humorous, but uh, um, let me just read you a couple of quotes here. This agreement will help to achieve a longstanding and vital American objective, an end to the threat of nuclear proliferation. 1994, President Bill Clinton. President Obama, Iran will never be permitted to develop a nuclear weapon. President Clinton. Compliance will be certified by the International Atomic Energy Agency. President Obama, what we're going to do is setting up a mechanism whereby, yes, IAEA inspectors can go any place. President Clinton, this agreement represents the first step on a road to a nuclear-free Korean Peninsula. President Obama, this framework would cut off every pathway that Iran could possibly take to develop a nuclear weapon. I'm unsettled because we've had bad experiences dealing with bad actors. If I look at this today, I hear uh, Secretary of State, you said something today I haven't heard you say before, and I, I, I want to dial into this. We're guaranteeing they won't have a nuclear weapon. I know that's our goal, but I've read every page of this document. I've seen the, the um, classified documents. I'm very concerned that as I read this, the deal, I understand our objective, I understand their intent, our commitment is to never allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. My question, Secretary Kerry, again is, does this deal actually preclude Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state? Uh, Senator, first of all, I really appreciate your approach to this, and I very much appreciate your comments. Um, and I, I, I know you're taking this very, very seriously as are other senators. And I want to speak specifically to your uh, several concerns. First of all, I believe, I mean, I spent 29 years here on this committee back in the early days of the MX missile debates and INF and Europe and SALT and START and so forth. This, I believe, is one of the most extensive agreements with the most extensive access provisions and accountability standards I've seen in the time that I was here. And I believe we have put in place a highly distinguishable set of measures from North Korea. Now, first of all, North Korea, during the eight years of the Clinton administration, they didn't gain one ounce of plutonium capacity. What they did was they started cheating on the HEU, highly enriched uranium path. And the framework was put in place and the administration's changed. And the new administration came in with a different attitude about sort of how to approach them. But with the discovery of the cheating on the HEU, they immediately shut down the diplomatic track and, 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 and North Korea pulled out of the NPT. 
fully pulled out of the MPT. There were no inspections. Nothing else was happening. And yes, they blew up several nuclear weapons and they developed the, their nuclear capacity. That should be a warning to everybody here about why what we have in fact put in place is so important and, and ought to be embraced. Because unlike North Korea, the North Korea experience is what gave birth to the additional protocol. Senator Kerry, I, I apologize. Okay. I just want you to know, though, Senator, the additional protocol came into existence to remedy the deficit of what happened with North Korea. So the access we have here, we never had in North Korea. We have unprecedented ability to hold uh, Iran accountable. And I believe through the myriad of access, civil nuclear program, 24-7 access to their declared facilities, we will know instantaneously if they try to move to a higher I, I understand, and I heard you say that last night, and I appreciate that. If they do, we'll know. But does this deal, does this agreement preclude Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state, the deal itself? I believe if the agreement is fully implemented, and obviously if Iran lives by it, yes. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Liu, <clears throat> uh, with regard to the options, what, what brought Iran to the negotiating table um, recently? What, what is, what's their motive for coming and negotiating in the first place? Senator, um, I, I'm not sure I could tell you the specific thing, but we look at the impact of the sanctions over the last number of years. It's crushed Iran's economy. It's crushed it in every way. Reduced from, it about 20 percent. Yeah, the size of the economy is down. The exchange rate is terrible. The unemployment and inflation rates are sky high. So, excuse me, the concern I have then is in the very beginning when they came to the table, we ceded to them the right to uh, enrich, the right to potentially bypass 18 countries who are good actors on the, on the world stage uh, and join an elite group of five countries that actually have civil nuclear programs but do not enrich. Now, there are nine, as I understand it, nine countries that actually have um, nuclear weapons, five in the MPT, four out of the MPT. I, they obviously have civil programs. They obviously enrich. But the delineation here between the countries that are good players, Germany, Brazil, Afghanistan, or I'm sorry, Argentina, um, Holland, Japan, we're putting Iran into that group, a bad actor like Iran. My question is, what the option that I see to this is potentially doubling down on the sanctions that got them to the table in the first place. I'd like you to respond to that. We know it was crushing their economy. We know it was having a tremendous impact on their regime. And my question is, is, is that not a viable option today as we look at alternatives to, to the, uh, the deal itself? You know, Senator, I think the reason the sanctions have had the powerful effect is that they're not just U.S. sanctions. They've been international sanctions. And that requires keeping an international coalition together to impose the kinds of tough sanctions that we've had. You know, in past debates over U.S. sanctions, we've gone back and forth with the Congress saying, if you do more and it keeps other countries out, then we're in the end doing less. And I think we've come to a good place on each of the rounds of discussions over sanctions to grow the coalition in the world. If this deal is rejected, the other partners who have helped us to impose those sanctions will not be of like mind. Of the $115 billion that you've identified, and I understand the, the nuances of, of the different categories of that cash, <clears throat> how much is that relative to our tertiary, our secondary, rather, um, sanctions on other countries dealing with Iran versus the EU and other players on the, the P5 plus one? Um, I would have to go back and look at the numbers, but the, the, these are Iran's resources. Uh, that I understand, are but, up. but I'm trying to make the, the, the delineation here between what is 
What are the sanctions, what percentage of the 115 is due to U.S. sanctions, congressional sanctions, versus the P5 plus one, or the- Yeah, I, it, the it's P5. kind of hard to disaggregate because our sanctions are as effective as they are because we get the cooperation of other countries. And I can tell you, as have the other secretaries at this table, we have had for years now ongoing discussions where it's getting harder and harder to keep countries tied to the oil sanctions, for example, because of their economies. They've been willing to do it because the goal of the sanctions was to get Iran to the negotiating table. Mm. Query, would they be willing to do it if Iran came to the negoti negotiating table and we rejected a deal that all of the other countries in the P5 plus one have signed on to? That's where our sanctions ability starts to fray. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Uh, this is very hard because diplomacy with an adversary, with an enemy, is hard. Diplomacy with a friend can be hard. But diplomacy with an enemy, President Truman, when he proposed to spend billions of dollars to rebuild the economy of Germany after they had done two wars against the U.S. in 25 years, that was hard. And there were objections and there were no votes. President Kennedy, nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, during the Bay of Pigs they were negotiating, that was hard. It was controversial and there were no votes. Diplomacy with an adversary is hard. Diplomacy with an adversary is often necessary. This is a deal that in my review produces a dramatically better position for about 15 years than the status quo before negotiations started. When you started the negotiations right before Iran had a program that was 19,000 centrifuges and growing, you've knocked it back to 6,000. 12,000 kilograms of enriched uranium, enough for multiple weapons, you've knocked it back to 300. An enrichment level 20% and climbing, you've knocked it back to 3.67%. A heavy water plutonium facility at Iraq, they're dismantling it. They were on a path where they had a huge program and it was growing. For 15 years, this deal with the inspections mechanisms, et cetera, produces a dramatically better status quo for the United States, for regional allies, for the world. My questions are about after year 15. Secretary Moniz, various provisions start to come off the certain elements of the program, certain inspections begin in year 8, 10, year 15, the 300 kilogram cap comes off. When you get to year 25, here's how I read this deal. The deal basically is Iran commits in the first paragraph of the agreement, under no circumstances will Iran ever seek to develop purchase or acquire nuclear weapons. They've agreed to all the NPT obligations going forward, and they've agreed that any nuclear program will be completely civil in nature. They make that commitment. What we have to determine if they would cheat would be the intelligence that we have, the knowledge we've gained through 25 years of enhanced inspections, and the ongoing inspections under the NPT, especially the additional protocol. Is that level of knowledge sufficient at year 25 and thereafter to detect if Iran tries to violate this deal and acquire nuclear weapons? Well, I, th I think it certainly puts us in a far stronger position than we would be otherwise. Uh, and, uh, and I think the risks uh, on their part would be enormous uh, to try to break their, uh, their, uh, their commitments. And I think you've put your finger on a, on a very important thing, which I think our intelligence community uh, would, would support. Uh, we should not forget the tremendous knowledge of the program 
what they're doing, where they're doing it uh, over 25 years. We will have a lot of indicators uh, to really uh, amplify our uh, national means. That's a good segue to the question I want to ask Secretary Kerry, which is about alternatives. You talked with Senator Murphy about them. I think there were those who objected to the negotiations starting in November of 2013. They were against that diplomatic beginning. If we could go back to that status quo, it seems to me that the status quo then was we had sanctions, they were punishing Iran, hurting their economy, but they were racing ahead on their nuclear program. We were hurting their economy, but the nuclear program, 19,000 centrifuges and climbing, 12,000 kilograms and climbing, enrichment percentage climbing, Iraq, heavy water moving ahead. If we just had lived with that status quo, it seems to me one of two things was going to happen. Either they were going to eventually capitulate because of the sanctions, or they were going to get a nuclear weapon. There were, two, there were two odds. I don't know, and I'm not going to ask you to assign odds to those two things, but there was a significant risk. The program, had you not started diplomacy, they were going to get a nuclear weapon, and you have forestalled that. So that was one alternative. We do nothing, but that status quo was a dangerous one, where their program was rocketing ahead. Let me mention another alternative, because it's been mentioned by members of this body. After the framework was announced on April 2, a member of this body who has been a, a loud and influential voice in this issue said bombing Iran to end their program would only take a few days. Mr. Secretary, you've been at war. Do you find that to be a realistic statement? Well, I, it's a, <laughs> I find it to be a factual statement in the sense that it would only take a few days, but I don't find it to be a realistic statement in terms of a policy because um, the implications of that, if you're not at the end of your rope, if you, in other words, if it's not last resort, uh, would be extraordinarily complicated for the United States. If we were to do that, that's an alternative. If we were to do that right now, would we have international support for that? Not on your life. No way. In it, the middle and, of this and would we have an international legal basis for doing it? We were in Israel in January. A number of us met with Israeli intelligence officials who said they have concluded that Iran is trying to get to a threshold, but that Iran has not yet made a decision to pursue and acquire nuclear weapons. If we were to initiate a war against Iran when they had not yet made that decision, would there be an international basis for a war? No. And furthermore, we'd be proceeding without any of our allies, which is not a, not a small consequence. Let me flip it around on you, because I want to talk about credible military threat. If this deal is done, and if Iran confirms to the entire global community in the UN, Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. They pledge that to the world. We're all in agreement. And then they break toward a nuclear weapon. Would we be more likely to have the support of international partners if we want to take military action to stop them from doing what they pledge not to do? Absolutely. Would we have a greater legal basis to justify taking military action to stop them from doing what they have pledged not to do? Yes. And would we have, because of an inspections regime plus existing intelligence, a lot more knowledge about how to target military action, increasing the credibility of our military threat? Yes. I don't have any other questions, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Chairman Corker and <clears throat> Senator Cardin. Thank you for your opening statements, and thank you for the way in which you've handled the beginning of this 
debate that we'll have over the next 56 remaining days. I'm going to be pretty brief because everything's been said, just everybody hadn't said it yet, so I'm familiar with Senate hearings when they enter their fourth hour. But I do want to make a couple of things crystal clear on behalf of my constituents, and I speak for myself as well. Secretary Kerry, you said that this has unprecedented transparency from a standpoint of inspections and holding Iran accountable. Is that correct? With the exception of the Iraq war, yes. Do you recall the debate on the New START Treaty? Somewhat. We were involved in that pretty heavily when you were chairman of the committee. That was missiles, and there's a distinction between missiles and a nuclear program. But I know we had shorter period for an access to a missile. That's a different deal. But, but what, what got the two-thirds majority that ratified the New START Treaty in the Senate was satisfaction to the Senate that the inspection regimen was quick, decisive, and the United States had access to look and verify what the Russians had told us. Is that not correct? Correct. On a missile. That's correct. But it was a verification of an agreement in the treaty. I, I understand. This particular agreement, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the IAEA is the inspector. Principal inspector. We are obviously sleuthing, and all of our intelligence communities around the world would be following it, but they're the, but they're the principal and identified inspector. And we pay 25% of the cost of the IAEA, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And the treaty specifically says none of the inspectors can be Americans. Is that correct? Uh, in this particular thing, yes. That's correct. Th those two points that I've raised are why people raise questions in terms of the inspections, and whether they are unprecedented in their transparency. And I'll just leave that for you to respond to later now or later, but I think you're really going to have to deal with it deeper than you have today. Well, I'm happy to explain. There are a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which we don't have diplomatic relations with Iran, uh, which is one of the principal reasons that we can't proceed to have inspectors and so forth. Um, the START treaty had specific locations identified in it, pre-located. This inspection is for things that we can't pre-locate. These are for what we might suspect at some point in time or what we might have some evidence of at a point in time. And so what the start inspections are analogous to is an IAEA visit to a declared location. We have that. We have the same thing. Declared location in start, declared location here. What's unprecedented here, Senator, uh, which we negotiated, and I'm, I'm, uh, I was, you know, pleased we got it, is this ability for us to be able to close out the IAEA process. The reason we are all here today is that the IAEA could never get it finished. They would fight. They'd go back and forth. The years went by. Nothing closed it out. We have an ability, through the Joint Commission here, to vote, go to the UN Security Council, and mandate that they give us access. And if they haven't given us the access, they are in material breach, and we get snapback of the sanctions. So there's an automaticity to this that doesn't exist in other agreements. Okay. Senator May. In one second, Secretary Benes. I want to get to one other question, then we'll elaborate. Thank you for the answer. The second thing that concerns a lot of people, and I think Senator Menendez brought it up a minute ago or in his earlier statement, was the negotiation of the five-year when the UN embargo on conventional arms goes away. Right. It appears to me that that appeared late in the negotiation. It was not something that was on the table originally or even thought to be talked about because this was a nuclear deal. Why and when did that embargo, that, the expiration of that embargo get into the deal? 
The discussions of the embargo actually began on almost day one uh, of the negotiations. Well, then, and I, they went on for two years, two and a half years. Why, in a hearing based on nuclear weapons and prohibiting the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon, would we waive a sanction at some point in time in the future on exporting conventional arms? Why would that be a part of the agreement to start with? Well, let me uh, let me explain to you. It's a it's a good question, and it, let me answer it. It was slid into the UN resolution at the last minute. Uh, frankly, the arms uh, embargo provision. The arms embargo and and the uh, missile. Uh, the arms embargo specifically was the last minute. Yeah. Uh, then UN. Uh, Into the nuclear resolution, right? Right. Then, um, you know, UN Permanent Representative Susan Rice helped write that or wrote a good part of it, and she put it in. And in fact, the Iranians bitterly objected to it, felt it was being rammed at them in the context of a nuclear uh, agreement, and it had no business being part of a nuclear agreement. It's conventional arms, and they thought they had every right in the world to do it. They have fundamentally ignored it for all these years, but they made it clear from the get-go that one of the primary red lines was they had to get all those sanctions lifted. We said, no, we're not going to lift them. We're not going to do this when your behavior, look at what you're doing in Yemen. Look at what you're doing with Hezbollah. We're not going to lift it. The problem is, Senator, we had three countries out of seven that were ready to lift it altogether on day one, and four countries that said, no, we need to keep it. So the compromise ultimately was recognizing that we had many different ways of coming at the enforcement of activities on missiles and arms with specific resolutions for no arms to the Houthi, no arms to uh, the Shia in, in Iraq, no arms to Hezbollah, no arms to Libya, no arms to North Africa, to, to uh, North uh, Korea. All these are existing resolutions that we have and can enforce. So we didn't think we were losing anything. In fact, we won a victory to get the five and the eight to continue them uh, in, th in, in the context of a nuclear resolution where they believe they didn't belong in the first place. My time um, is almost up, so I'm going to interrupt. I apologize for doing that. No, that's so. fine. But, the, but correct me on one thing. You said at the beginning it was on the table from almost the beginning? Well, the point, no. What was no, no, well, let me finish. Their well, demand was on the table from the beginning. Okay. Their demand, and we said no from the beginning. And then frankly, said, and then we knew said, this was going to come down to be probably the last issue. And then you said, quite frankly, it was slid in at the, last, at the end. At the UN by Susan Rice, when she first wrote Resolution 1929, the arms embargo came into that resolution at the very last minute. Well, my only point, and I'm sorry I'm cutting you off, but I don't want to be respected all the time. The inspection and, and the transparency of those inspections in some satisfaction, we didn't give away the store on conventional arms to put Israel or some of the other Middle Eastern companies in, countries in jeopardy is a serious question that needs to be responded to. Secretary Manini, if you wanted to say something. I was going to add a, I was going to add a small footnote to the issue of the, uh, uh, the countries without diplomatic relations not being part of the inspection team, which obviously includes us. I just wanted to point out that, again, that for, the, for decades now, uh, all the, the inspectors are trained, uh, have training here in the United States. Uh, we're very confident in a very, very broad set of very confident people. In addition, and I could get you the exact number, but right now I think we have about a dozen Americans uh, in the safeguards effort at IAEA, uh, and obviously they play a very critical role. I would love it if you would give me that information specifically.
And Senator, I'll get you a list of all the mechanisms we have to prevent the arms from flowing that are a threat to Israel and the region. Those are critical questions to me and I think the American people. Thank you for your service to the country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Markey. We, we're going to take a break when we have the second round start, but can y'all make it through three more senators? Okay, thank you. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, we very much appreciate all your great work. Um, Secretary Moniz, one of the assertions which is made is that in 20, after 15 years, that all bets are off and that Iran can then begin to enrich, theoretically, up to 90% uh, if they want, uh, which is a bomb-grade material. Um, could you deal with that issue? That is, what happens in 15 years? What happens when uh, Iran announces that it would go past 3%, go past 5%, go past 20% in terms of its enrichment of uranium? What is the, the law, the regulation, the sense of the uh, world community in terms of what they could do at that point to make sure that there was not a bomb-making program that was now put in place in Iran? Well, of course, Senator, uh, first of all, uh, uh, whether it's 15 years or 20 years or whenever, uh, they will be required uh, to report uh, all their nuclear activity, and clearly, uh, if they were to report that they were enriching to 90%, uh, every alarm bell in the world would go off because there's no reason uh, to do that. And when the, so, alarm, when the alarm bell went off, what would then happen? Uh, I would imagine there would be, an, first of all, extraordinarily strong, and I would imagine cohesive international pressure, what uh, would, perhaps what would, sanctions, and perhaps a military response. So, for example, what would Russia's response be in 15 years if Iran uh, started enriching to 50, 60, 80, 90 percent? What would happen? Everything I have saw in the last months of negotiation is they would be solidly with us uh, in very, very strong opposition to that. Secretary Kerry, do you agree with that? Totally. They and China were really surprisingly and very welcomingly deeply committed to this effort and, and do pretty any nuclear weapon for Iran. So in, and, in 15 years, Secretary Moniz, please continue. No, I was going to say, and then, of course, so I mentioned if they declared this, it would, the alarm bells right. would go off. But furthermore, if they didn't declare it, which would be a more likely scenario, frankly, uh, there what we still have is uh, through these 25 years, actually, mm -hmm. uh, the containment and surveillance on any manufacturing of centrifuges, the uranium. So once again, they would need the entire supply chain uh, covertly, uh, which would be an extraordinarily difficult thing to, to, uh, to carry off. Okay. So in the early years, Secretary Moniz, if Iran decided that they wanted to violate the agreement um, after dismantling their program, how long would it take for them to take their rotors, their components uh, out of mothballs and to reconstitute their program in the first 10 years if we were successful in watching its dismantlement in the early years? Uh, I'd say in the rough terms, uh, two to three years uh, probably to do that. Uh, that would depend a lot upon um, conditions of the machines, et cetera. But that's a, that's a ballpark. Yeah. Secretary Kerry. Uh, Senator, I just wanted to add something because you're dealing sort of with this 15-year concept, but the truth is because of the 25-year tracking of their uranium, it would be impossible for them to, for, to, to uh, 
you know, have a separate covert track. So the only track by which they might be able to begin to enrich would be through the declared facility, and we would know it instantaneously. And the world would say, stop. Exactly. Okay. Um, uh, so let me ask you this, Secretary Kerry. You, you spoke earlier about uh, the Iranian foreign minister visiting uh, the Emirates this weekend. Can you talk about that and what your hopes are for the un unfolding diplomatic opportunities that may be possible in that region? I will, Senator Markey, but I would, I would preface it by saying to all my colleagues that nothing that we've done in here uh, is predicated on some change or something that's unanticipatable. Uh, can one hope that this kind of opportunity perhaps provides a moment for possibilities and change? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif, both in their public statements embracing this arrangement, talked about how it could open a new moment in the Middle East for the countries to be able to come together and be able to resolve some of the differences that have separated them. I know for a fact that the Foreign Minister of Iran wants to engage with the GCC countries, uh, that this is not the only country he plans to visit. He wants to sit down with them. The Saudis have indicated a willingness to sit down. So who knows where that dialogue goes, but I can guarantee you the United States will do everything that we can to encourage it and to try to help it find some kind of specific uh, steps that might be able to begin to deal with Yemen, with the Houthi, with other issues that we face. You, you spoke earlier about the Saudis, and you have talked to them in the last week. Could you expand upon that uh, a little bit more in terms of well, what you feel say, is a possibility going forward? Generally, what I would say, Senator, is this, that, that of course, all the countries in the region are apprehensive because they see Iran uh, engaged with the Houthi in Yemen. They see them engaged with the Shia Iraqi in Iraq. Uh, they see them also fighting against ISIL. They also see them in Syria, where they've made the most havoc supporting Assad and supporting Hezbollah over the years. And Hezbollah, obviously, is a threat to Israel, a threat to the region, uh, not to mention that there's been support for Hamas even lately. These things concern us deeply, and that concerns them. And that is precisely why we have come together and are working on what I talked about earlier uh, with, uh, I think, Senator Gardner about the evolution of the uh, Camp David process that begins to fill out a new security arrangement and a new understanding of how together we can push back against these activities. Thank you. Se Secretary Moniz, did you want to add anything in terms of the the likelihood that there could be a breakout under the regime, the legal regime which we have in place that would not be detected early enough in order for there to be an international response? No, I think a, a breakout would be very, very, very quickly, I think, uh, detected, and it, then, then it's a question of the response, and of course, especially in, these, in this first decade uh, or so, I think we have a, and beyond the first decade, uh, I think we have a very comfortable uh, uh, period of time to do diplomatic and or other uh, Responses. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank all of you for your work. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator. Senator Paul. Thank you for your testimony. I continue to support a negotiated solution and think it 
preferable to war. I think uh, military solution in all likelihood will accelerate the possibility of them having nuclear weapons, of ending inspections, et cetera. However, it does have to be a good deal, and I think that's the debate we have. Um, Secretary Kerry, I guess I would ask is, in general, how would you describe Iran's history of compliance with international agreements? Would you say they're generally trustworthy or generally untrustworthy? There's no trust built into this deal at all. It's not based on any concept of trust. But, and, and, and I agree. I think everybody sort of understands that. Uh, the Ayatollah's recent comments where he said, the Americans say they stopped Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. They know it's not true. So we have the history of you know, untrustworthiness. We have a lot of uh, verbal uh, or verbiage coming from the Ayatollah already saying, well, he's, you know, this really isn't any limitation on our uh, ability to make a weapon. So really then it comes down to a good agreement. Um, someone asked, well, will, you know, will this stop them from having a nuclear weapon? Yeah, if they comply, sure. So then the question is compliance. And my question and my, I guess my problem is that there's a great deal of credence being given to snap back, uh, you know, sanctions as this way, as this lever to get them to, compl to comply. Um, Secretary Liu talked about there being a phased reduction in sanctions. That's not exactly the way I read the agreement, though, because they do have to do some things, and I think they're significant things, reducing the amount of enriched uranium, et cetera, to a low level and um, getting rid of centrifuges, et cetera. The problem is, is that um, the wording of the agreement then says the sanctions are simultaneously withdrawn, and the vast majority are. There's some compliance, but to me, it's the initiation of compliance. Um, I'm more worried about the continuing compliance after that, and I think the argument would be that snapback sanctions will be that lever. Um, I guess my preference would have been that there would have been more of truly a phased reduction or a stepwise reduction over a many-year period mm -hmm. of the, the sanctions and not the immediate release of sanctions. And I guess my question is, in the negotiations, was there discussion? Was it ever our position that we shouldn't have simultaneous release of all sanctions, but more stepwise or gradual reduction in sanctions to ensure compliance? Well, this was obviously at the heart of the negotiation, um, which is why we drove such a, what we consider to be a very hard bargain with respect to what they needed to do. Uh, that is, look, it was always the fundamental equation of this negotiation. You folks pass sanctions, we pass sanctions. And our passage of sanctions was specifically to bring them to the table to negotiate. So if that was the negotiating lever, clearly when they came to the table, they wanted the lever taken away. And so the quid pro quo here was always, what restraints will we get? What, what insight to their program? What long-term commitments can we get? They can't get a bomb. How do we fulfill President Obama's pledge to close off the four pathways to a bomb? That's the exchange and they get some relief from sanctions. Now, their insistence for you know, two years was obviously this notion, and all the way to the end, actually, has to all go away at once. Everything, all sanctions, all the UN, everybody's sanctions. Well, we resisted that, we didn't do that. That's not what happened. What we did was we wound up securing the one-year breakout time, going from two months to one year securing the safety of reducing their operable centrifuges and reducing 
the research that they could do on the next advanced wave of, of, of centrifuges, reducing the stockpile, locking it in at a low level that couldn't produce a bomb, locking in their enrichment level at a low level that can't produce a bomb. So in exchange for all of the things we've required them to do, which by the way, Senator, are genuinely extensive, they have to undo their piping, they have to undo their electrical, they have to move things, there's a huge amount of work they do. So I guess the, when that is done, I don't know whether it'll be six months or a year, but when it is done, we lift the fundamental component of financial and banking sanctions that were the heart of what brought them to the table. That's but, the exchange. But I guess the point is, is that everybody that's for the agreement, yourself included, are saying this will prevent them from having a nuclear weapon, and the Ayatollah is saying exactly the opposite. Well, no, the Ayatollah has actually... And you're uh, the intel community. I urge you to connect with them. There is no decision there whatsoever. What he's doing is protecting his domestic turf. Oh, no, By the he's way, he's saying the opposite. Well, he's saying that this is not true. That this does not stop us from acquiring a nuclear weapon. That troubles us. Zarif was saying the same thing in March when you came out with your statement of what you thought the agreement meant. Yeah. They were saying the opposite. It troubles us. Here, here, let me let me those who want. I want a negotiated settlement. I want to believe that we could have an agreement. Yeah. But it troubles us that immediately the Iranians say the opposite. No, he's of not what we're saying being the opposite of this. In fact, the Supreme Leader's quote is in this document that Iran will never go after a nuclear weapon, and the Iranians happily put that in, and the intel community will tell you they have made zero decision. Right, but to you dispute what he said this week. The Americans say they stopped Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. They know it's not I, true. And you know why he's saying that? Because he doesn't believe the Americans stopped us. He believes he stopped them because he issued a fatwa, and he has declared the policy of their country is not to do it. So he is, as a matter of sovereignty and pride making a true statement. He doesn't believe the Americans stopped them. He said they didn't want to get one in the first place. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Kearns. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin uh, for convening uh, this important hearing. And I'd like to thank all three of our witnesses for your service to our nation and for your testimony here today. Uh, I think we all share a simple basic premise, which is that the United States must not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. A nuclear-armed Iran would threaten our national security, our vital ally Israel, and the stability of the entire Middle East. And so in the next two months, I will review the details of this nuclear agreement and consider its ramifications for our nation and for the region. I'll compare it to the alternatives and support it only if I'm convinced it sufficiently freezes every Iranian pathway to a nuclear weapon. In my years as an attorney for a corporation, I would often get handed a big, complex deal by optimistic business units that believed they'd launched a new marriage, a new partnership, and my job was to review it, not with the wedding bells ringing in my ears, but with the likely divorce day uh, in the picture before me. Because frankly, no one ever pulled those agreements out again unless there was a violation, there was a disappointment, there was a breakdown in the relationship. And I'll say as I look not at the spin or the politics of this agreement, but as I dig into the substance of it, it is an agreement built on distrust. It is a wedding day where the bride is shouting, I hate you and your family, and the groom is shouting, I distrust you, and you've always cheated on me, and each is announcing their distrust of the other really at the outset. Um, and I do wonder uh, what the alternative is, given that disagreement here seems inevitable. So let me turn to the wedding guests uh, and a question about how that may play out. A key piece of this agreement 
is the Joint Commission, a Joint Commission that has eight representatives, P5 plus one, uh, and the European Union and Iran. And they will resolve access disputes. Uh, they are a key piece of how we would get access to undisclosed sites. Uh, and if Iran doesn't sufficiently answer IEA concerns about a suspect facility within a certain number of days, there's a consensus vote and so forth. But our confidence about our ability to resolve disputes under this agreement depends on the reliability of those votes. And I don't mean to impugn the partnership of our vital allies who've gotten us to this point, but I am concerned that CEOs from many European nations are already winging to Tehran and talking about significant economic relationships. Um, should we be nervous about the votes in the future on that joint commission of the EU or our other allies, uh, given what will be, I suspect, significant economic interests that might um, inspire them to either direct the EU to vote against access or block access for us. How confident can we be of our allies' enduring support of our interests in the, I think, likely event of cheating? I think we can be uh, very confident, and here's the reason why. The access issue goes to the core, the absolute core of this agreement, which is preventing them from getting a weapon. And if we have sufficient information, intelligence, input, shared among us, by the way, we share all this information. And by the way, Israel will be feeding into that. The Gulf states will be feeding into that. When we have any indicator that there is a site we need to get into, and we're all We've shared that amongst each other. We're in agreement. This goes to the heart of this entire agreement. They will prosecute that. They will understand the circumstances. And by the way, there's a converse, you know, there's another side of that coin about the economic interests. You have a young generation of Iranians who are thirsty for the world. They want jobs. They want a future. Iran has a huge stake in making sure there isn't an interruption in that business and that they are living up to this agreement. So if, in fact, even when you're way beyond the 15 years, if we find there's a reason for us to have suspicion under the additional protocol and we can't get in, the United States alone, for the duration of the agreement, has the ability to snap back in the UN by ourselves. We always have the ability to put our sanctions back in place. And given our position in the world, and, and that's not going to change in the next 10, 15 years economically, we're still the most powerful economy in the world, we will have an ability to have an impact on their transactions and ability to do business. So we believe we are very well protected here, Senator Coons, because we created a one-nation ability to go to the Security Council and affect snapback. Well, let me, if I could follow up on that, Mr. Secretary, the snapback sanctions that we can affect through the UN Security Council, are they the broad sweeping financial sector sanctions that we worked on together and that brought Iran to the table, or are they a paler version of that? Oh, no, no, they're the full, they're the full Mahdi. Because as you know, we've had debate among some of the colleagues on this committee whether or not this agreement prevents the reimposition. Well, we have, we have a choice. We do have some discretion. I mean, language is in there that says in whole or in part. Mm -hmm. Now, if we find there's some minor something and we want to slap the wrist, we can find an in part. So that's up to us. So we in your view, we have the ability to ratchet back sanctions in pieces or in whole? If needed or in whole. 
Let me, if I might, turn to Secretary Moniz in the time I have left. Um, about centrifuge development, um, if you would just, let, I'll articulate the question and then if you'd have an answer for me. How long did it take Iran to master the IR-1 centrifuge? What's the difference in performance between the IR-1 and the IR-8? Um, and how long do you think it will take Iran, given the restrictions of this agreement, if observed, to master the IR-6 and 8? Uh, and then what would the impact be on their ability to enrich after years 10 to 15? So, uh, Senator Coons, the, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the IR-1, of course, they've been working on it for quite, quite some time, and um, they have some challenges uh, still. Um, the uh, terms of the R&D and the more advanced machines, the, of course, first of all, the program does uh, substantially shift back in time their, their program plans. Uh, where they are today is the IR-6 that you mentioned uh, is, let's say, seven or eight times more powerful than the IR-1, and they are already uh, spinning small cascades uh, of, of that um, uh, with, with uranium. Uh, uh, the IR-8, uh, which is projected to be maybe 15 times more powerful, uh, is at the mechanical testing stage only. Uh, that's what got frozen in in the interim agreement. So if I might, in closing, Mr. Chairman, it would be perfectly reasonable to expect that on a 10-year time horizon, the IR-6 and 8, which they've already, they're already testing cascades of the 6, they've already got mechanical testing of the 8 underway, it'd be reasonable to expect that a decade from now they'd be 15 times better, faster at their enrichment, but not no, 100. We don't, we don't believe that they will have, uh, with this schedule, we don't think that they will have, uh, be anywhere near ready for industrial-scale deployment of those, of those machines, certainly not in the decade and for some years thereafter. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, Secretary Kerry, you mentioned a, a uh, Washington Post story related to uh, Israelis who know what they're talking about. I I'd like to point out to you, that wasn't even in the newspaper. That was a blog post. And it was written by someone who's been described as a left-wing political activist. And if I have to choose between them and the Prime Minister uh, of Israel, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, I'm going to stand with the Prime Minister of Israel. But if you want to start talking about the newspaper, let's take a look at yesterday's New York Times, a real news story. Some experts question verification process in Iran accord. First paragraph, the Obama administration's claim that the Iran nuclear uh, accord provides for airtight verification procedures is coming under challenge from nuclear experts with long experience in monitoring Tehran's program. Several experts, including a former high-ranking official at the uh, IAEA, said a provision that gives Iran up to 24 days to grant access to inspectors might enable it to dis escape detection. Quote, a 24 day adjudicated timeline reduces detection probabilities exactly where the system is weakest, detecting undeclared facilities and materials. So I would just say to, to all three of you, uh, I find it very telling and very disturbing that the President of the United States decided to go to the United Nations on Monday before coming to the American people. I think the American people have a right to have their voices heard. We expect to hear from them in August as we head home and listen in town hall meetings across the country. I think Congress has the right and the responsibility to provide oversight. 
Secretary Kerry, our nation's highest military commanders have very clearly warned the President, have warned you, have warned Congress that lifting the arms embargo and current restrictions on ballistic missile technologies to Iran would be wrong. On July 7th, this year, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey, testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee. He was unequivocal. He said, under no circumstances should we relieve pressure on Iran relative to ballistic missile capabilities and arms trafficking. Under no circumstances. That's what he said. Defense Secretary Ash Carter also testified about Iran. He said, we want them to continue to be isolated as a military and limited in terms of the kinds of equipment and materials they're able to get. And just seven days later, you did the complete opposite of what our military advisors very clearly warned against. You disregarded the views and the advice of our top military commanders, negotiated away these important restrictions on Iran, getting deadly military technologies. U.S. negotiators, I believe, capitulated, surrendered, agreed to lift the arms embargo to get this deal. And Russia, I must point out, can gain about $7 billion from arms sales to Iran. This administration repeatedly ignores the advice of our military leaders when it comes to important national security decisions. The administration ignored General Odierno's recommendations to keep U.S. troops in Iraq after, two, after uh, 2011. President Obama withdrew all of the troops. The administration ignored Secretary Leon Panetta's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, Martin Dempsey's recommendations to arm vetted Syrian rebels. President Obama refused. The administration is now coming to Congress once again, ignoring the advice and recommendations of our military leaders. This time it's about Iran. Mr. Secretary, how can, how can you justify ignoring this advice and the judgment of military commanders responsible for securing the safety of the American people? Well, Senator, we didn't. I, I work with Marty Dempsey. I have great respect for him. We heard what he said very clearly, and we respect what he said, which is why we have the eight years and why we have the five years. Uh, in fact, we held out very, very strongly to keep them. And the fact is, Senator, uh, during those five years and those eight years, we have all the options available to us in the world to strengthen or find other means or deal with those very issues. So they're not gone. They're there. We respected his advice. Moreover, uh, we have additional capacities to be able to deal with missiles. Uh, we have uh, the lethal military equipment sanctions provision in the Foreign Assistance Act. We have the, Iran's, the 1996 Iran Sanctions Act. We have the Iran-Iraq Arms Nonproliferation Act. We have, those are unilateral tools, by the way. Uh, we have a bunch of multilateral tools, a proliferation security initiative with 100 countries, which works to help limit Iranian missile-related uh, imports and exports. We have the Missile Control Technology Regime which does a lot to prevent uh, the growth of any missile capacity. Uh, so, you know, there are many things we will continue to do, but it didn't go away. We actually kept it. And we kept it notwithstanding the fact that three out of seven of the negotiating parties wanted to get rid of it altogether. We kept it. Next thing, on the UN. You know, we fought for the prerogatives of the Congress. But you know, six of the seven countries we were negotiating with are not beholden to the United States Congress. 
If their parliaments passed something and said, you got to do this or that, and you were being told what to do, you'd be pretty furious. They were negotiating under the United Nations. And their attitude was, we've finished negotiation, we ought to be able to conclude our agreement and put it before the UN. And we said, wait a minute, our Congress needs to be able to review this. So we got them to accept a 90-day provision in the agreement for non-implementation. They are respecting our desire, and we're respecting your desire. For 90 days, there's no implementation of this. If they had their way, they'd be implementing it now, immediately. But they're not. So I respectfully suggest that we have to have a balancing here of interests and equities. I think we have preserved the prerogative of Congress. The same, the same consequences will apply if you refuse to do this deal with, with the UN vote as without it. Same consequences. And none of us have sat here and thrown the UN vote at you. We're simply saying this is a multilateral agreement that's been negotiated by seven countries. I'd say the same thing if I was here without the UN vote. Well, you know, it's interesting. Secretary Liu mentioned that you said a deal our partners believe is a good one. And, and, and Secretary Kerry, uh, you had talked about the, the P5 plus one, and you said, and they're not dumb. Well, well I agree that, uh, with that. They're not dumb. Uh, and it makes me, though, wonder if Russia truly is our partner in this. We pressed the reset button. We saw how that failed. We see uh, Putin's belligerents around the world. I believe Russia and Iran teamed up against the United States during these uh, negotiations. Actually, the Iranians were furious at the Russians uh, on any number of accounts. The Russians, they felt, were not cooperative with them and didn't help them. You're exactly wrong. Well, that's... that's the time will judge us on all of that. But just coming back from Ukraine and seeing what's happening, as well as uh, in, uh, from Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania, I can see the belligerence uh, and the aggression of Russia, and I see it in this agreement. And it's not because they are our partners or were our partners or are going to be our partners in the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time has expired. Thank you. It's my understanding you guys want to keep rolling for a while and not take a break. Is that, is that correct? I, d I didn't know that. I don't know. I, I, That's what... Uh, <laughs> Well, that's what uh, Julia had mentioned to us. But if you want to take a, uh, let's want to take a five-minute break. Y'all are. Yes. Five-minute break taken. Thank you. I ha I have to be over at the house. Is my problem. So I have to be at the house. They don't have to be there. I have to be at the house. You have to be at the house also. So supposed to be at the house in 20 minutes. You want to keep going then? Well, I'm happy to try to get uh, whatever we can in those 15, 20 minutes if, if you'll allow me to hobble over there for a minute and then come back. I appreciate it. Hobble away. Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. You guys go ahead. Okay. We'll take a break. Okay. I want to thank you, uh, all of you, for your patience and uh, spending so much time with us. Um, each of us, I think, will be very brief just to try to finish up before you go over to the House. Uh, I want to make just a couple of points and, and move to Senator Cardin. Uh, we just, uh, on the PMD issue, in my, it's my belief that whether that is re resolved in an A-plus fashion or D-minus fashion, uh, the sanctions relief will continue, and um, 
I, I will say that uh, Salahi today has stated that by December 15th, at the end of the year, the issue of PMD should be determined. The IAEA will submit its report to the Board of Governors. It will only submit it. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action will continue independently of the results of this report. That's exactly the way that I read the agreement. I, I don't see any debate there. Secondly, I, again, I, th I keep think I, th I believe that the secretary continues to create a false narrative about where we are. I would just like to remind him of the letter from Secretary Geithner to Senator Levin on December the first, two thousand eleven, when Senator Menendez had an amendment to the NDAA regarding the CBI sanctions, and here's what he said. However, as currently conceived, this amendment threatens severe sanctions against any commercial bank or central bank if they engage in certain transactions with the CBI. This could affect, negatively affect many of our closest allies and largest trading partners in highlighted. Rather than motivating these countries to join us in increasing pressure on Iran, they are more likely to resent our actions and resist following our lead, a consequence in that could lead to, to, that would serve the Iranians more than it harms. And obviously, that wasn't the case. Obviously, through U.S. leadership, it actually caused them to come to the table. And again, I think that uh, uh, you unfairly characterize where we are and that I do believe that uh, with your leadership and others, if Congress were to decide that this was not something worth alleviating the congressionally mandated sanctions, a different outcome could occur. But with that, uh, Senator Cardin. Mr. Chairman, I want to follow up on that point with Secretary Liu because I'm in agreement that we have uh, in Congress been the strongest on sanction type of legislation, whether it relates to the nuclear activities of Iran or whether it relates to their terrorism or their missile program. And whether it's the Obama administration or the Bush administration or any previous administration, they prefer to act on their own rather than having Congress uh, provide the, the, the framework, but in reality it's worked to America's advantage and it's given us a strong position to go internationally to get sanctions uh, imposed. So it's worked. <laughs> Bottom line, the system has worked for U.S. leadership. So Secretary Lou, I am concerned, and you, I started with this question, I'm going to come back to it. Uh, paragraph 26 says we will refrain from reintroducing or reimposing the sanctions that have been terminated. And you've gone through some of the things we can do for non-nuclear related activities. But if it's an institution, say the Central Bank of Iran, that is getting relief under this, uh, under this uh, JCPOA, uh, and they, we have clear evidence that they've been involved in sanctionable activities that are non-nuclear related, can we sanction them yeah. under this agreement. Absolutely. Senator Cardin, I have tried to be clear. If, if there are non-nuclear sanctions being imposed, we have retained all of our rights. Including an institution I, has been... Including institutions okay. that are delisted. Second question. It second. just can't be a pretext to put back nuclear sanctions. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I understand. If we have clear evidence that Iran has used its crude oil sales in a way that has furthered non-nuclear, uh, sanctionable type of activities. Can we go back to the crude oil issue if we have clear evidence that that would further uh, provide relief 
uh, in regards to a non-nuclear uh, activity? I think in, in principle, we have not taken any of the means that we have of applying economic pressure off the table for non-nuclear purposes. So it could be sectorial to the types of relief that yeah. they've received under this agreement? Uh, it, it would have to be justified based on a non-nuclear basis. Okay, that, that's very helpful, and that's, uh, that, that, that's uh, uh, so it, we are going to be free to have some, some interesting yeah. discussions as we move forward. Second point, and this is the Secretary Kerry, quickly. I'm very happy to hear you say about our strong commitment in the region. The security issues are changing. They're changing for Israel, they're changing for our allies. No question with ISIS in North Africa and Syria, in addition to Iran. You, you'll just quickly how we are committed to making sure that Israel is secure in that region with a true and trusted partnership with the United States to meet any challenge that they may confront as a result of the changing circumstances. Thank you, Senator. Um, first of all, I begin by saying that I'm proud that I had a 100% voting record for 29 years here on the subject of Israel, and uh, I have worked as hard as anybody here, I think you know, over the last years to try to uh, meet these needs with respect to the peace and stability demands for Israel. Uh, we are completely, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that even with this disagreement, we are constantly in touch and working with the intel community, with their folks, and we continue to dialogue about the threats to Israel. We understand those threats. They are real. They are existential. And there's no debate in this administration whatsoever about our willingness to commit anything and everything necessary to be able to provide for the security of Israel. Now, we believe that security of Israel will also be enhanced by not only this agreement, but by bringing the Gulf states together in a way that can deal with some of the problems uh, of the region, and particularly Daesh, Assad, Syria, and so forth. And that's very much on our agenda at this point in time. Thank you. I'll yield back my time. Yeah, I, I do want to say there's a significant disagreement among our allies and Iran over the issue that was answered relative to reapplying nuclear sanctions in other areas. I'd love for you to develop a letter. I, I'm sure Iran wouldn't sign it, but one where Great Britain, France, and Germany and the EU agree with the statement you just made because I just met with them and, and uh, my impression, maybe I don't understand things correctly, uh, was they are in strong disagreement with the statement that you just made. Uh, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think it's abundantly clear from this hearing is that this is obviously complex. Uh, this agreement is subject to different interpretations which kind of leads me to believe, and I'm not blaming you or the administration, I blame Iran. I, I just believe that this is going to end like uh, our sanctions and, and uh, the, the program against North Korea. And I think in the end, Iran will, will have nuclear weapon with ballistic missile technology. So that's why I want to quick go back to uh, Secretary uh, Moniz. I, I was surprised, I'd say disappointed, that you weren't aware of the recommendations from the 2008 EMP Commission report. Uh, by the way, and again, but I guess I caught you by surprise. You weren't for this hearing. Just so you know, that, that was commissioned by the 2001 a National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, they reported in 2004 and 2008. And this is something certainly I'd heard about before I ever came here, and just, well, this is Star Wars stuff, and uh, it couldn't possibly happen. But again, you, you acknowledge knowing uh, Dr. Richard Garwin, correct? Absolutely, 
a, a brilliant man. Yes, I, and I know he worked with Enrico Fermi, who uh, Mr. Fermi referred to him as one of the few true geniuses he'd ever heard or, or ever known. Uh, he Dick, Dick is a national resource. <laughs> he testified, and, and my, my ranking member uh, during the, the uh, uh, hearing said, "Oh, you know, he looked into this, and somebody said it was it was Holcomb." Uh, the threat of EMP, the threat of GMD is not Holcomb. It's a real threat, and I think it's a growing threat when you have North Korea, potentially a state like, like Iran, if, if this thing turns out like North Korea. Uh, we have multiple threats of this, and particularly in light of the fact that we know Iran has been testing a potential EMP attack using a Scud missile off of a, a ship, which would be one of our threats, particularly on our southern border when we have no defense, or potentially a satellite orbiting. So again, I, I, just, I just want to make sure that you're, you're fully aware of that because the 2008 EMP Commission pretty well tasked DHS and Department of Energy as the two lead departments to enact their, their 15 recommendations. And again, they're, they're, they're pretty basic recommendations, you know, evaluate and implement quick fixes, assure availability of equipment, uh, replacement equipment. And, and again, what Dr. Garwin reported, and this is what I thought was actually pretty uh, encouraging, is if we would just protect 700 transformers to the tune of about $100,000 per transformer, that's only $70 million. But again, it's been seven years, seven years since that recommendation. And, and again, the, the Secretary of the Department of Energy didn't really know anything about it. So I guess I'm just, I'm well, just asking you. Can I, can I clarify, though, Go ahead. Senator? I mean, I know something about EMP. I don't know but, that specific report. But, uh, and including the effects, and as I said, uh, but look, and also, by the way, I will, uh, Dick Garwin also does a lot of work with our OSTP. I will talk with Dr. Holdren, uh, the President's Science Technology Advisor. Maybe there's an administration-wide thing that we can do and consult with you on that. But I do want to emphasize, in April, we did our energy infrastructure report and, e and the issues of transformers and EMP uh, and other threats were there. And furthermore, we have a, made a recommendation about going forward in a public-private partnership to potentially establish a transformer reserve in addition. So I would love to discuss this. I just don't know that particular report. Uh, I, I know the issues. What we'll probably do is call you in for a hearing in front of my, my committee, Homeland Security. Yeah. But again, this was issued, these recommendations issued in 2008, seven years later, and according to GAO, who also testified, of the 15 recommendations, we've done virtually nothing. So this is a real threat. I, I, America needs to understand, certainly the the uh, Secretary of Department of Energy needs to be aware of these recommendations and be working toward their implementation. And there's a relatively quick fix, which we will quite honestly add as an amendment to, to authorize spending $70 million to, it's, it's, it's imperfect, but it goes a long way toward protecting some of those transformers. So I hope you'll be supportive of that. Okay. Senator thank Menendez. You. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. You Chairman. Uh, Ms. Secretary Liu, I, I basically, understood your answers to my previous question, say that you have no intention of uh, seeking reauthorization of the Iran Sanctions Act, an act that in October 3rd of 2013, entitled, uh, in a hearing, entitled Reversing Iran's Nuclear Program, Wendy Sherman and David Cohen heralded as critical to moving forward. In 2014, negotiation on Iran's nuclear program, another hearing, they both said the same thing and talked about the important congressional sanctions. So uh, it seems to me that if you want a deterrent, Iran has to know consequences. Maybe it will never be called into play. That's fine. That's good. Hopefully they won't be called into play. 
but they need to know what the consequences are. And so, as far as I'm concerned, I think we should be moving to reauthorize uh, the uh, sanctions that Congress passed and that expire next year and let the Iranians know that if they violate, those are one of the things they're going to have to go back to. So um, I'm going to move to reauthorize them because I think it needs to be part of the deterrence. So let me ask Secretary Kerry the following question. Do you believe that Iran will be and should be a regional power? Uh, do I believe that they should be in the future or something? Will be and should be a regional power? Well, I think to some degree there's an element of power in what they're doing right now. So I don't know about the will be, but do I want them to be? Not in the way that they behave today, no. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, uh, the president in a column with Tom Friedman said that the truth of the matter is that Iran will be and should be a regional power. But that's a pretty bold statement about a country that is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world as defined by our government. So they would the have president. to be a dramatically different Iran to Correct. have any aspiration and for the president to be a knows regional that. power. I think Senator let me ask, let me ask you one final thing. Yeah. Uh, I've, you're an excellent, excellent lawyer. And when you can get to argue something both ways, if you can achieve that, that's great. So I've heard you argue we will have everything on the table that we have today. We will have the sanctions. Uh, we will have a military option. Then I've also heard you say sanctions is not going to get Iran to stop its nuclear program in okay. terms of, and uh, a military option will only deter them for three years. So isn't really what you're saying that at the end of the day, we hope that Iran will change its course over the next 10 to 15 years, that if they violate, we'll get notice from three months that we had to 12 months uh, a year. But at the end of the day, neither sanctions nor a military option is going to, if I listen to you, your arguments, nor a military option is going to ultimately deter Iran if they decide to do so. So doesn't that, in essence, say to us that we are reconciled at the end of the day if they want to, to accept Iran as a nuclear weapons? Absolutely, positively not. Okay. Not in the closest imagination. I'll tell you why. They're not going to be sanctioned into submission. We've seen that. They have what is called their resistance economy. There are limits to what our friends and allies are able and willing to do. You know the challenge we've had in just bringing people along on Ukraine. Uh, bringing people along, particularly the Russians and the Chinese, over a long period of time is going to be very, very difficult. There's sort of a half-life, if you will, to the capacity to keep the sanctions pressure in place. In addition to that, uh, on the military option, we all know, as it's described to us by the military, it's a two to three year deal, whatever. Now, that option is, that is real. It's a last resort option. If you can't make diplomacy work, if you can't succeed in putting together a protocol that they have to follow by which they live, which guarantees they won't have a weapon, that's your sort of last resort. But it shouldn't be the first resort. It shouldn't be the place you force yourself to go to. And I think given the structure of this agreement, we have a much better option. 
Because whenever it is, 15 years, 20 years, whatever the moment is that the alarm bells go off on a civil nuclear program, which has 24-7 access, which has inspectors, which we will know has suddenly moved from 5% to 10% to 20% in Richmond, all the alarm bells go off. We will have the ability to bring those nations back together. And the question is, do you have a you have a sort of readiness and willingness of those countries to come together because you've honored a process and worked through a process? Or are you, you know, sort of pushing them away? The point is to come together, what, for the sanctions that you say won't lead them to No, but sanctions obviously brought them to the table. Or, That's or a different thing. Or come together for a military option, which uh, at the end of the day will deter but not end it? I mean, I, I just don't understand the proposition. Let, let me Sounds like your proposition will be there whether it is today or whether there's a violation No, in Senator, future. because I believe this deal, in fact, achieves what we need to achieve now. We wouldn't have come to you. We wouldn't have signed this. I assure you, Germany, France, Britain would not have signed this agreement, all of us together on the same day, if we didn't have a sense of confidence that this is doing the things we need to do, shutting off the uranium path, shutting off the plutonium path, shutting off the uh, covert path, and so forth. And, and we believe it does that. That's why we're here. We believe it does that. Now, the proof will be in the implementation. We all know that. But we have a sufficient cushion here of those years because of the very dramatic steps Iran has agreed to take and to implement. We have a very real cushion during which time we have a chance of building up confidence. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's absolutely going to work 100%. I believe it will. But if they don't comply, I do have confidence we're going to know there's noncompliance. And then we have the options available to us that we have today. Mr. Chairman, Mr. I know Secretary Kerry said that he had to leave at 2.30. We do, I'm afraid. And, and, and we have a, a couple more witnesses. So I, I, if, he, if that's a hard time, I think we should. It is a hard time. Uh, I actually have to be at the House right now. You okay with that? Well, listen. Uh, Obviously, this is a, a serious matter that uh, the three of you have spent a tremendous amount of time over the last two years. We appreciate your patience with us today and testifying the way you have. We appreciate your service to our country. Julia, who I know was having a heart attack as staffer, we thank you and hope you have a, a good meeting with House of Representatives. Thank you. Thank you very much.